Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. I'm Greg. And I'm Lindsay. And we have another great show for you today. But first, Lindsay, what's on your mind? Yeah, I think I want to start today with a book recommendation. Um, I read quite a bit, and I'm kind of hoping that if I give book recommendations on the podcast, maybe other people will give me book recommendations as well. So the book that I just finished is called The Fifth Season. It's the first book in a trilogy called Broken Earth. Um, I'm on the second book now. Uh, It's a science fantasy genre, which I guess is like a mixture between science fiction and fantasy. But there are elements that remind me of post-apocalyptic novels as well, which I also love. Um, But it takes place on a supercontinent where every few centuries uh, the inhabitants endure what they call a fifth season, which is like catastrophic climate change brought on by earthquakes. And the main characters have the ability to control energy, particularly being able to cause or prevent earthquakes, which, you know, cause the catastrophic seasons. Mm -hmm. Um, But because of the immense power that those people have in their abilities, everyone's scared of them. And they're like an extremely oppressed class of people. Um, but the the books were written by N.K. Jemison, who's a black woman. And I think her perspective and the themes that she brings in are just really refreshing for those genres. You don't see a lot of people of color and women in science fiction and fantasy. Um, and so the books are filled with people of different races and sexualities and gender identities and castes alongside with like these magical elements of people having these cool abilities. Um All three books in the series won the Hugo Award, uh, and the author was the first person to win the Hugo Award three years in a row, or for all three books in a trilogy. Oh, wow. Which is really impressive. Yeah. That's why, like, when I learned about that, I was like, oh, I got to give these a shot. And uh, as a Song of Ice and Fire girly, it's very comforting to have a series that I love that I know is completed. (laughs) And, and in fact, will be completed. Has has It has been completed. I, I, yes. Who knows with Song of Ice and Fire? It's not happening. Absolutely. No. I mean, I, I've I've been uh, skeptical that it would finish for a while now, but like I'm starting to get skeptical that even Winds of Winter will get done. Yeah. Like, I think I think he's lost his drive. Just doesn't have the fire in his belly anymore. Yeah, I mean it's relatable. The procrastination. He has so much else on his plate, but. It is a bummer that we're never going to see yeah. our dream of spring. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you're liking the fifth season uh, series. Yeah. You you absolutely devoured the first book. Mm-hmm. Is the is the second one as good thus far? Yes, definitely. I'm already like, I think a third of the way through. And it was easier, I think, to kind of just like jump into the second book nice. after finishing the first one. Like the first one, it actually took me like a little bit to kind of get into like when you are reading something that is kind of set in a whole other world you do kind of have to sink into it a little bit and learn like what's what the rules are of this world like the characters it it can take a little bit longer to kind of familiarize yourself with all of that but now that i'm in the world like i'm just going through the second one super quickly nice yeah what about you what is your recommendation today um i have i have a video game recommendation which um 
I think video games are are, are like books for boys, uh, basically. <laughs> okay. No, I'm I'm just kidding. Uh, that's a joke. <laughs> I mean, I do think that there's probably a bit of a bit of a split in terms of like who's uh, primary like recreational activity to wind down is reading versus video games that maybe breaks down along lines of sex and gender. Who knows? Um, but yeah, that's a joke. It, it is a video game, which which is <laughs> which is for girls. Which too. is a video game for girls and boys. Okay, great. Um, yeah, I've I've been playing Trackmania recently, which has been very fun. Like it's a it's a racing game, mm-hmm. and uh, longtime listeners of the podcast know that I previously used to play a lot of Mario Maker, and I think this scratches a very similar itch. Like I am not someone who wants to have to remember like 50 different things a character can do and like the the gameplay itself is like super complex i prefer games with very simple mechanics that reward like precision and high level mastery of those simple mechanics mm-hmm. um so yeah like like basic mario very simple like you run you jump that's about it yeah but then like once you're getting into doing like crazy shell tricks and whatnot you are still just like running, jumping, releasing shells, that's it. Uh, like you're doing six things total, but like the the skill barrier for like being able to complete hard levels is very, very high, yeah. even though the mechanics are simple. I think racing games are similar. Like you turn left, you turn right, gas break, that's it. Um, but to get a really good time, you need like really clean lines. You need really good timing. Like it's, uh, yeah, like it's, it's, a very different game, but like it scratches that same. Yeah, edge. you're trying to like put together a perfect run. Yeah, yeah, like easy to learn, difficult to master. I, I think that's my sweet spot. So I've yeah, I've really been enjoying that. Is it similar to Mario Maker in that it has the user made content as oh, well? Yeah, yeah. yeah, so um, there is there's a lot more developer made content than there was in Mario Maker. Yeah. Like th- there was like a. Um, like a story mode in Mario Maker that was very short and extremely easy. Um, with Trackmania, the developers release a new set of 25 maps every season. So it's currently the summer campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also like the community makes a lot of maps. Um, so yeah, there, there is more like developer made content. And there's not like as endless of a supply of user-made content as there is for Mario Maker. Like I think there are like literally tens or hundreds of millions of Mario Maker levels. It's it's insane. Yeah. I think it's more like tens to hundreds of thousands of Trackmania tracks that are that are user-made. Which it's more than I'll ever play. Um but it it is like yeah, like most of the content is user-made, but it's not like as much of a mountain of content mm-hmm. but yeah it's it's very fun and yeah i've i've been liking it are there lot. leaderboards are you on any leaderboards um there are uh so it does it by like by like country region and then like globally as mm-hmm. well and like i mean i've been playing it for about a month yeah i'm not like super good yet but i'm right around top 100 in north carolina nice which I don't know if that sounds impressive or not, but I'll tell you that it's not because <laughs> uh, tr- Trackmania is a lot more popular in Europe than North yeah. America. Um, but I, I think like I think that there are close to like I, I think there are 
a, a number of players in the hundreds of thousands globally. I think I'm like right around top 20k in the world, which for having having been playing for a month, like I'm I'm not too displeased with that. Yeah, I would say. Nice. Yeah. Um. All right. Let's let's get into it. Uh, we got some plugs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, please like, rate, and subscribe, and tell your friends. It really helps us out. If you're interested in hiring a virtual coach to help you with your training and or nutrition, Stronger by Science has a team of excellent coaches that can help you. You can learn more at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. If you want to purchase supplements from a reliable source and support the podcast at the same time, buy from bulksupplements.com and use the code SBSPOD to get a 5% discount. And other than supporting our team of coaches, the main product that Greg and I focus on these days is our app MacroFactor. It's a premium macro tracking and diet coaching app. We both use it and love it, and 85,000 other people do. You can try it for free for 14 days by using the code SBS during signup. It's available on the App Store and Google Play. And if you want to learn more about all the features in the app, you can check out our website, macrofactorapp.com. Absolutely. And if you'd like to stay up to date with uh, all of the research going on that is related to fitness, nutrition, getting stronger, getting more muscular, etc., um, check out the Mass Research Review. That stands for Monthly Applications in Strength Sport. Um, you can check that out at massresearchreview.com. Um, if you'd like to stay up to date uh, with the research going on in a way that is cost-free, you can sign up to the Stronger by Science newsletter. Uh, we'll give you free uh, a free study breakdown uh, every other week uh, straight to your inbox. Uh, we don't spam you like a lot of newsletters do. Like It's not 20% informative content and 80% marketing emails or anything like that. Um, but yeah, so if, if you're... If you're jonesing for content on podcast off weeks, that's when our little research spotlight newsletters go out. Uh, you can check that out at strongerbyscience.com newsletter. That will also be in the show notes. Um, if you'd like to stay up to date with just other things in the Stronger by Science extended universe, uh, discuss the podcast, give us feedback, etc., uh, check out our Facebook group and subreddit. It's Stronger by Science Community on Facebook and reddit.com slash r slash Stronger by Science. And finally, if you have questions that you'd like us to answer on the show, um, just in general, it would behoove you to join the Facebook group and subreddit because if we're soliciting questions about a particular topic, uh, that is where we'll kind of post the prompt. Uh, but otherwise, if you just have general questions, uh, which... We'll be answering one of those at the end of this podcast episode. Uh, yeah, send those questions to podcast at strongerbyscience.com. Uh, record a voice clip, um, around 30 seconds, a minute tops, and, and email it to podcast at strongerbyscience.com. And uh, if we like your question, we will answer it on the show. Uh, I think that's about it, so, so let's get into it. Um, so uh, we are doing a bit of a series on micronutrients. Um, and I'll just say from the jump, I am like slightly apprehensive that no one's actually going to listen to this series because <laughs> for, uh, as we'll talk about in this episode, like micronutrients are one of those things that are important. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people, I think very few people have like that strong of opinions about micronutrients. It's not it's not a topic that gets people really fired up. Yeah. I, I think it's something where 
folks know it's important and it's just kind of filed away in the back of their mind. They're like, oh yeah, like micronutrients are good. Uh, eat some fruits and vegetables, like that's fine. I don't need to know anything else about it. Um, so yeah, like I don't know if this will be the biggest hit series in in podcast in Stronger by Science podcast history, but uh, I, I think it's there is a lot of surprisingly interesting and cool content on the topic that, um, I mean, for the reasons I just discussed, I suspect a lot of people aren't aware of because right. this just isn't a topic that gets that much attention. Um, so before we get into it, just just on a pure vibes level lens, <laughs> um, if if someone such as myself were to ask you, what are some of the things that come to mind just when you think about micronutrients? Mm-hmm. Um, like what what are some of those things? Yeah, I think similar to you, like it wasn't something that I put a ton of thought into until recently. Um, but if you would have asked me this, I don't know, a couple months ago, a year ago or something, like I would say, oh, it's like it's the good stuff that's in fruits and vegetables, like a lot of um, plant-based foods will have like a lot of vitamins and minerals. Those are micronutrients. Those are good for you. Maybe like stuff in a a multivitamin or something like supplements you might take. Um, I know that like an association I had was, was kind of like the people who obsessively track certain micronutrients. And that wasn't something that I ever did or like quite understood like why people were so interested in it. Um, but I agree with you that like now that I've learned more about micronutrients, which we'll get into why that is in a second, I, I do think there's some really interesting stuff. There's some fun facts and mm-hmm. I think this series will be good. So if you're listening already, if if we got over the hump of getting you to click on this, hopefully you'll enjoy it and uh, you'll agree with us. Yeah, stick around. There's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of fun stuff coming down the pipe. Yeah. So, Greg, why are you doing a series on micronutrients in the first place? Yeah. So, so two things. Uh, the first reason, I'll just be completely transparent yeah. about this. Um, Macro Factor, our nutrition app, recently launched a full suite of micronutrient tracking features. Um, and so, in in some way, uh, talking about micronutrients on the podcast does like double a little bit as marketing content, but that's not the primary reason. Um, so we launched those micronutrient features. So I had to, uh, read a lot about micronutrients and make a lot of micronutrient content for the macro factor website and the macro factor knowledge base. Um, and I'll, I'll tell, I'll tell you guys a little secret about the podcast. I double up a lot. (laughs) Um, I've got a lot of stuff going on and, uh, I don't have a ton of time to, um, research stuff and write about stuff uh, in one com- like in one domain and then come up with completely separate content for the podcast like mm-hmm. there just aren't enough hours in the day yeah. and since I put a lot of time and effort into learning more about micronutrients and making micronutrient content that's what you're getting for the podcast because I just don't have time to, <laughs> to uh, just make net new content that that isn't going anywhere else um so yeah just being transparent about that on the front end but then second and i think more importantly is um i I do think micronutrients are pretty poorly understood by people who are into health and fitness yeah um 
there's just not that much content about them that's mm-hmm. being put out. And the um, content that is put out is kind of boring. It, it often is. Yeah. Or like alarmist or yeah. fear-mongery. Or it feels uh, like it's usually kind of in the realm of like superfood adjacent stuff. Like, yeah, And I'm just yeah. like, I don't know if I can trust this. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like there's a ton of content out there on like calories and macros. And micros are, like I said before, just kind of hand-waved away. Um, there will be a mention maybe of, oh yeah, like micronutrients are important. So eat your fruits and veggies sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that's about it. Yeah. Um, but like you, like you alluded to before, like there is like the, the content that does get put out is often kind of bad, mm-hmm. uh, you, either cause it's like excessively focusing on nutrient deficiencies or which I mean, I'll just say up front, um, a lot of people listening to this, there's, like a non-trivial chance that you do have like insufficient intake of some nutrient or, or another, uh, probably a very low chance that you actually have a true nutrient deficiency. Like I, that, that is a term that I think is very overused, mm-hmm. um, which we'll talk about in part two of this Ooh, series. Teaser. Uh, yes. Unintentional teaser, <laughs> but, um, but yeah. And, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of like fear mongering, I guess. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, there's a lot of stuff about, like, this one nutrient is super important. And if you don't if you don't get enough of it, like, all of this bad shit will happen. Yeah. Um, it like, feels like wh- why I've been kind of hesitant to ever look into it for myself or track it for myself is it, it feels like it's just going to be a lot of things to freak out about. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I've gotten this far in my life without feeling like you know some some terrible health consequence from not having enough of a vitamin or mineral so Mm -hmm. i'm like well you know i don't know yeah for sure i mean that that's absolutely absolutely valid and understandable um yeah there's also i think a lot of a lot of content of people like like you said like uh kind of superfood discourse yeah like people picking a single micronutrient and treating it as if it's a wonder drug so some some examples of that in recent years um is like maybe five years ago or so vitamin d was very hot um like there were a lot of influencers saying like ah everyone's deficient in vitamin d you need to like mega dose vitamin d that's gonna prevent cancer, prevent osteoporosis, uh, prevent all of these like autoimmune conditions, like blah, 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 whatever. And it was mostly, mostly claims that were quite poorly supported, but, um, yeah, people talking as if like vitamin D was a wonder drug, um, go back about eh, maybe like three or four years before that. And you saw a similar thing with omega threes, um, like, oh, this is like so big for brain health, so big for heart health. Um, yeah, like like no one's getting in enough omega threes, and like if you do, it's going to turn you into a fucking ubermensch, basically. <laughs> um, and then going back even further than that, like this this is something that there are still echoes of today, where people might take like a mega dose of vitamin C if they feel like they're getting sick. But talk to talk to your parents, or depending on your age, people who might be like in their forties or fifties, mm-hmm. I would say. Uh, yeah, like, like people between their forties and sixties would probably be kind of the prime ages for this, but vitamin C, like it used to be so hot back in the day 
uh, due to this guy named Linus Pauling, who was of the opinion that like, like aging itself and most health problems were the result of excessive oxidative stress. Mm -hmm. And so if you took high doses of antioxidants in general and vitamin C specifically, that would be kind of like the elixir to good health, a long life, preventing a ton of diseases. And like most of those claims also didn't pan out. Yeah. Um, But yeah, there, there has been through the years a lot of, micronutrient content that is basically like that here's this one micronutrient it's basically a wonder drug um and yeah like most of that stuff just hasn't panned out Mm -hmm. but that that is i think a context a lot of people have in mind when they think about micronutrients um and so yeah like i wanted to do this series just to provide you the listener with uh basic information so that when you encounter claims about micronutrients in general or specific micronutrients you'll have, you'll be on more solid grounding. You'll have a a more robust base of understanding to be able to understand and critically evaluate claims. Um, And also there are a lot of fun facts and and fun little pieces of historical trivia about micronutrients uh, that you're probably not aware of, even if you're a pretty big nutrition nerd. So there, I I think it's just a fun topic and I think you will enjoy it. Yeah, well, let's get into it. Before we get to ahead of ourselves though, uh, what are micronutrients in the first place? Can you give us just kind of like a working definition? Um, sure, yeah. So I I couldn't find like a single definition that everyone agreed to, but mm-hmm. um, I mean, the, the basic understanding is kind of con- contained in the word itself, micro, so you don't need to consume too much of it, and nutrients, uh, something that, that nourishes you. Um, So yeah, that's like the basic idea. But I think there's a difference between the explicit denotation of the word and like the connotation of the word, kind Mm -hmm. of how people how people use it just in day to day life. And I think when people talk about micronutrients, they're essentially using it as a shorthand for everything you might want to track related to your diet. besides yeah, like that's calories not a macro and macros. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it's more a category by exclusion where yeah. it's like if it's not calories or macros, ah, those are micros. Mm-hmm. Um I think maybe a more appropriate term for what people refer to as micronutrients would just be like non-energetic essential nutrients because that's what they are. Mm-hmm. Um cuz yeah, like a, not all of them are that micro. So for instance, fiber, um like people sometimes lump fiber in with micronutrients, especially like the IIFYM crowd. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, like a lot of people consume 20, 30, 40 grams of fiber a day. Like that's yeah. kind of a lot, you know? Um, or sugar, and, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, like that, That I guess does fall under the definition of like not calories or, ma- well, no, it's a macro, it is, like it's a carb. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, kind of like fiber. a subcategory. Yeah. Um, yeah, so of things people consider micronutrients, not all of them are that micro, like fiber, for instance. Um, and there are also other compounds that you could definitely consider nutrients, which are just things that aid in, in growth and development and health mm-hmm. that you do consume in relatively small quantities, but that are non-essential. So things like phytonutrients, for instance, or something like creatine, like those are nutrients you consume in small quantities, but they're they're non-essential. So 
Uh, typically, they wouldn't be considered micronutrients. But yeah, uh, long story short, it is kind of a hazy definition, yeah. I guess. Um, but yeah, so I, I wanted to first address some some basic information about micronutrients or, or non-energetic essential nutrients, um, and then dig into some questions and controversies with plenty of fun facts along the way. So very first thing, when I say essential nutrient, what I'm talking about is a nutrient that is necessary for, uh, depending on what definition you look at, uh, people will say either uh, normal development and good health or normal development and normal function. Um, so normal development basically from from fetus to adulthood, uh, like stuff you need to consume to make sure you, you reach like full adult height uh, without um, like, like mental deficiencies, mm -hmm. like a lot of micronutrient deficiencies can cause issues with like mental development, mm -hmm. uh, normal skeletal development, et cetera. So, you know, that's the normal development part. And then uh, the second part is either good health or normal function. Like those are the two terms you'll see thrown around, which as we'll talk about uh, in, in a bit are kind of nebulous terms, yeah. but those are the terms that you see uh, thrown out. Uh, and the third part of the definition is that um, there, there are things that are necessary for normal development and good health or normal function that must be consumed from dietary sources. So there are a lot of biomolecules that are absolutely critical and necessary for normal development and good health that your body produces itself. Mm. Uh, an essential nutrient is something that the body either doesn't produce at all, like vitamin C, for instance, or something that maybe it does produce but not in adequate quantities for what we define to be normal development and good health or normal function. So an example of that is niacin, like vitamin B3, if memory serves. Uh, but yeah, like your, your body produces some niacin, but nutrition researchers and epidemiologists look into it and they're like, yeah, like you produce some niacin, but not enough for what we consider to be good health. So you also need to get some from your diet. Mm -hmm. Um, and that seems straightforward, but, uh, like I mentioned before, it is a surprisingly hazy definition. So here are a couple examples of, uh, how, how this kind of understanding of essential nutrients, uh, is, is like sort of hazy around the edges. So vitamin D, for instance, uh, definitely considered a vitamin, considered an essential nutrient. Lindsay, would it shock you to learn that vitamin D isn't an essential nutrient for most people or for, for at least a lot of people? Well, that's what I was thinking about when you were saying the thing about like, it's something that needs to be consumed from dietary sources Yeah, because vitamin D is a thing that you, uh, get from the sun from being outside. Yeah. 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 Like your, your skin can, well, there are multiple stages of vitamin D synthesis that include mm -hmm. your skin, your kidneys, I think your liver. Like there, there's the the precursors of vitamin D kind of ping all around. Um, but yeah, like the, the rate limiting step for endogenous synthesis is primarily just sun exposure. Mm -hmm. Like that's uh, what kind of converts precursors of vitamin D to vitamin D3, which like if you take a vitamin D supplement, it is probably a D3 supplement. Oh, okay. And then vitamin D3 is what 
uh, other tissues convert to like the bioactive, like the most bioactive form of vitamin D. Um, but yeah, like, like a lot of people just don't have to worry about vitamin D intake at all. Mm -hmm. If they consumed no dietary vitamin D, they'd be totally fine. Mm -hmm. Because if you live at latitudes that are close enough to the equator and you're outside enough, your body synthesizes enough vitamin D. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I, I realize that I'm speaking to a primarily American and European audience. If you get to high enough latitudes, it is an essential nutrient because for at least parts of the year, uh, you're you're not getting direct enough sunlight to get enough UV rays yep. to actually cause that conversion to vitamin D3 in your skin. So then it does become an essential nutrient that mm -hmm. you do need to get from your diet. Um, but yeah, like the the <laughs> just considering it an essential nutrient, it is essential for some people. It's it's completely non-essential for others mm -hmm. just because like they do get enough sunlight and it's fine. Um, and it could be different at different times of the year too. Yeah, for the yeah, same person for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, another example is creatine, for instance, mm. just as. A, a recent pod topic. Yeah, yeah. Just as a nutrient that could be considered an essential or uh, poten potentially conditionally essential nutrient that isn't on any of the official lists, but it could be. Yeah. Um, so it is something your body can synthesize, um, but maybe it doesn't always uh, synthesize it in sufficient quantities for... And this is where the nebulous definition of good health or normal function comes in. Mm -hmm. Like, what does that mean? Um, so, for instance, low creatine intake is associated with a nearly twofold higher prevalence of depression. So, wow. in a study using NHANES data, the people in the lowest quartile of dietary creatine intake had a prevalence of depression symptoms of like a little over 10%. And uh, people in the highest quartile of creatine intake um, had a prevalence of depression of a little under 6%. So like almost a twofold difference between people with lowest and highest creatine intake. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it goes beyond just kind of mere associations. Because, um, you know, you, you could look at that and th there could be any number of other like explanatory factors or biases or whatever to explain that finding beyond a causal relationship. Uh, but there is also like experimental and mechanistic research where they take people with either like clinical depression or like subclinical depressive symptoms and supplement them with either creatine or, or a placebo. And creatine supplementation does seem to improve depressive symptoms in a lot mm. of those studies. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I mean. But it's a question of like, does normal function include like oh, you have good mental health. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the, it, it kind of gets to that idea of, well, how do we define normal function? How mm -hmm. do we define good health? Like, that is that is a, a kind of st sticky wicket, uh, as it were. Yeah. I don't know if that's correct slang there. I am, <laughs> I've never heard that before. I'm not but British. You, you always have new phrases. It, it, it just feels fun rolling off okay. the tongue. yeah. Um, but yeah, so like there, there is a case that could be made that creatine might be an essential nutrient, might mm -hmm. be a conditionally essential nutrient. Um, but yeah, so, since the definition is kind of hazy, like who, who knows? Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Um, all of which is to say like this stuff is kind of fuzzy and the nutrient categories themselves, 
uh, as I've alluded to before, do already allow for some of that fuzziness. So uh, nutrients are considered essential or non-essential, but then there's a third bucket of conditionally essential. Mm -hmm. And um, those are nutrients that are essential for normal health and function. Um, but most people uh, like produce enough mm -hmm. on their own mm -hmm. and it's fine. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, like uh, I think probably the best example of that that a lot of people listening to this podcast would be aware of is conditionally essential amino acids. Like there are essential amino acids, there are non-essential amino acids, and then the conditionally essential amino acids are amino acids that are that are essential like you need them for good health and function but they're considered conditionally essential as dietary nutrients because most people under most circumstances if they don't consume enough from their diet it's fine they can just synthesize them mm -hmm. from other amino acids but with certain diseases if you're taking certain medication uh, if you're particularly young if you're particularly old you might not be able to synthesize those uh, uh, conditionally essential amino acids endogenously in high enough quantities. So then they become essential. So mm -hmm. they're considered conditionally essential. Um, yeah, so, th so that is a whole category yeah, of nutrients. Yeah, a whole other bucket. But it's sometimes a judgment call regarding what should be considered essential versus conditionally essential versus non-essential. Um, so like those two examples I gave before, vitamin D and creatine, you could you could easily make a case that vitamin D should be considered a conditionally essential nutrient. Because mm -hmm. uh, if you live close enough to the equator and you're outside sometimes, like you you, you don't, don't you don't it. need to consume yeah. it. It's fine. Um, but if you live further north or further south than that, you do. So mm -hmm. essential for some people, not for others. That seems to meet my general understanding of what conditionally <laughs> yes, essential would yeah. mean, but it's always just considered an essential nutrient, like any official source you look at. Uh, and then on the flip side, like creatine, for instance, could be, I think, considered a conditionally essential nutrient. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like most people with low creatine intake are fine. Mm -hmm. uh, like I mentioned before, people with low creatine intake do have a higher prevalence of depression, but it's still in the neighborhood of 10%. Yeah, like, they're not all depressed. Yeah, it seems like 90% of people who have low creatine intake are, are fine. Are fine. Um, but when those people are given supplemental creatine, their symptoms improve, mm -hmm. which suggests that maybe it is a, like it is an essential dietary nutrient for those folks. Again, like that seems to meet my understanding of what conditionally essential would mean. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, all, all of which is to say like, we as humans, I think, like categorizing things like this is essential, this is not, this yeah. is maybe in the middle. Yeah. Um, but th there aren't bright lines between those categories. There, there are just a lot of judgment calls with everything related yeah. to micronutrients. Yeah. And one thing in a category might not like be the same as another thing in the same category. Correct. Yeah. 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 Like th there are some that, to be clear, are like absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. Like no questions asked. Like. Uh, the the first the first two um micronutrients or the first two vitamins that were discovered were vitamins b1 and b2 um i i forget which one is which uh but it's it's thiamine and riboflavin and mm -hmm. if you don't consume enough of one it causes a condition called beriberi and if you don't con consume enough of the other it causes a condition called uh pellagra or mm -hmm. pel or pellagra like i've heard it pronounced both ways uh and like 
that will kill you. Like if you do, if you don't consume enough of those, you die. Yeah. Like that's or or like fucking vitamin C and scurvy. You yeah. know. Um. So yeah, like there there are some that are clearly and obviously essential, mm-hmm. and then there are there are some that are like kind of on that on hazy that border. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but still considered essential. Correct. Uh. Yeah. And. and like I've been saying this whole time, a lot of that haziness does just relate to the idea of good health and, and normal function as criteria for determining what is an essential nutrient or not. Like those are kind of nebulous terms. Um, so like a, an example here is uh, there are a host of benefits from consuming a lot of phytonutrients that mm-hmm. aren't considered vitamins. So like uh, polyphenols, for instance, which you can find in a lot of fruits, uh, or isothiocyanates, which Ooh, you find in, uh, in brassicas, like broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, like, it, th- this isn't the episode to get into it, but like there, there are a lot of health benefits associated with consuming those nutrients, um, but they're not necessary to stay alive. So... Yeah they're not classically considered to be micronutrients. Like you're, you're not going to find an official health body that says like, um, oh, uh, uh, quercetin, like that is an essential nutrient, for instance. Like that, that's a polyphenol. Um, but yeah, like it's, but th- those are those are things that you're typically going to be healthier if you consume yes. them. Yeah. So then the question is like, how do we define good health or normal function? Like, uh-huh. you will you will be alive if you <laughs> if you don't consume any any of those other phytonutrients like uh-huh. you will still stay alive and you will probably live a pretty long time but like you might have a higher risk of like cancer or heart disease or whatever mm-hmm. might be just like sicklier in general yeah and so it's it's a question of like well you're pro- you're probably less healthy than you would be if you did consume these things, yeah. but, but how are we defining good health? Right. How are we defining normal function? Um, and yeah, so it, it is just like kind of hazy and nebulous. So kind of the, the takeaway from this intro, I guess, is just that like a lot of, like a lot of things related to micronutrients are a little hazier and more nuanced than I think most people would expect. And I'm wondering if that surprises you. No. <laughs> okay. Um, interesting. C- could you expand on that? Or, or like, if you have nothing to expand on, that's fine. But just, I- I'm wondering why you don't find that surprising. Well, I think you phrased it in a way. I do find it surprising that this stuff is hazy. I do not find it surprising that people don't expect it to be hazy. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. Okay, so why 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 do you find it surprising that it, that it is hazy? I mean, I think it's like what you were talking about. Whenever you hear about things that kind of have their own categories and like we, you know, it, it felt like a scientific pursuit, which you, we have the tendency to think like, oh, well, they have just kind of sorted all this out and it's very cut and dry it's very black and white Mm -hmm. um they have everything categorized in the way that it needs to be and i just have to like follow the recommendations for the categories yeah yeah no i i fully agree like i was in the exact same place and um i i think that 
I think that does relate to a dynamic that we see pretty frequently that that I think I pretty frequently call out, but just it hadn't occurred to me to look into it more when it comes to micronutrients. Mm -hmm. And that is that like a lot of messaging for the purpose of public health is like intentionally made like super simple and stripped of nuance because like most people don't care that much about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And so if they're going to actually like consume recommendations and understand them well enough to try to follow them, like they need to be pretty simple. Um, and like there, there is a difference between recommendations made by a public health body and the clarity of the research underpinning those recommendations. Right. Like a lot of times, and I, I think, I think that this, I, I think I, I think this is something that makes people like go slightly insane when they learn it for the first time and just go in like really conspiratorial directions. Um, there it's, it is not infrequent that a situation arises where there is something that, that people know or, or very, very strongly expect, uh, to be very important for public health. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if if people follow some recommendation, like they they anticipate that it will save thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives. But uh, the research underpinning the recommendations isn't like as strong and as clear as you would probably want or expect it to be. Mm -hmm. But you're put in a position where you're trying to make the best decisions and the best recommendations possible under considerable uncertainty um and so like like for instance um i i think i think like a, a good example of this is like all all of the people who just assumed that like every nutrition researcher was in the tank when um it like had been bought off by uh like like grain companies mm -hmm. or like Monsanto, Monsanto or whatever when more research started coming out suggesting that like uh high high saturated fat intake like probably is still kind of bad but like maybe not as bad as we've been telling you for the last few decades mm -hmm. but the thing is like the research from the last few decades did like pretty strongly suggest that like high saturated fat intake did was definitely associated with and probably caused heart disease but it wasn't like the magnitude of the effect wasn't super clear. Kind of the, the cutoffs of how much saturated fat you had to consume before risk started going up wasn't entirely clear. Um, and so, like, if, if you go back and look at what the state of the research was in the 80s, like, it was just much worse than it is today. And so, like, yeah, they, they made the best recommendations they could under the uncertainty that existed at the time that they were making the recommendations and then uh, more research comes out, stuff changes. And when I, I think when people find out that, oh, man, the, these things that were presented to us by our doctor or by the government as just a single number or single target to aim for uh, without any complexity, like you you assume mm -hmm. that it's really, really robustly, strongly supported. Mm -hmm. And then when things change, you look into it a little bit more or you come across an influencer talking about it and they, they reveal that like, ooh, this wasn't that strongly supported. Yeah. So like, what's going on here? Yeah. It's like that that's just a standard thing in like public health shit. Like 
that is something you have to do all the time. Um, but yeah, like micronutrients were a topic that I I wasn't that invested in. So mm-hmm. so I just looked at the recommendations. I I was like, oh, they're they're giving a single number to aim for. Like there, there has, must be a reason. Yeah, there has yeah. to be a ton of research for them to be like so confident to distill this recommendation down to a single number. And then when I started looking into it, I was like, oh yeah, like just like everything else in nutrition, this is way hazier than I expected right. it to be. I don't know why I had any other expectation, but I did. So Yeah. I think just like when you put a specific number on something, it makes it seem much more concrete than it actually is. Uh, I, I agree. A single number without like a, a confidence band. Yeah. Which, and we'll get into this in episode two as well. Uh-huh. There is a confidence band on these nutrient recommendations. Yeah. And no one knows about Never it. heard of her. Like people, people just talk about the RDA, but that's like, that is implied by like a distribution of like assumed needs. And yeah. Yeah. Folks just aren't aware And that, that would be so helpful for people to know because like, yeah, you can, you can succeed without hitting this number right on the head. Yeah. Like, and so, yeah, if, if, if things were presented as more of a range, I think that would have clued me into Oh yeah, okay. Like fucking everything else in biology, this shit's this shit's hazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, things vary from person to person, but since it is typically communicated to people as a number, if you if you see a single number without a confidence band around it, you assume that that's a super precise number. Yep. And oftentimes it isn't. Yeah. Um, I think right. we can get into categories. Yeah, let's do it. So there are several categories of micronutrients and essential nutrients. Vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids, essential amino acids, and choline, fiber, and water in their own individual categories of one. Uh, So why don't you kick it off by talking a bit about vitamins? Sure thing. So vitamins are organic molecules. And as organic molecules, they're composed of the elements you would expect any organic compound to be composed of. So carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, uh, and sometimes like other little things here and there, like vitamin vitamin B12 has some cobalt in it. But uh, yeah, they're, or- they're organic compounds. Yeah. It's something on a carbon backbone with just functional groups stuck to it. Normal shit. Um, and you don't just find them floating around in nature. So at some point in the food chain, they had to be synthesized by some other living organism that either you consume directly or you consume the thing that consumed it. Um, so mm-hmm. vitamins, by and large, are made by plankton, bacteria, plants, or other animals that either we consume directly or we eat the things that ate them. Yes. Um, and vitamins are subdivided into two broad categories. There are the water-soluble vitamins and the fat-soluble vitamins. Water-soluble vitamins, you have... Uh, I, I'm just going to give like the B vitamin numbers instead of the names. But you have okay. B1, B2, B3, B5. Where's B4? Maybe we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, B7, B9, B12, and vitamin C. Um, and the... All of them have two commonalities. One is that water-soluble vitamins are easily absorbed and easily excreted. So most of the time that, like, if if a nutrient accumulates in your body, it's often because it's fat-soluble. Like, it is soluble in fat, so it can be kind of stored in fatty tissues. It just kind of finds a home there. Um, Whereas water-soluble stuff, 
It can it's like coming in, coming out. Yeah, it can more easily go in and out of cells. Can more easily be excreted because it it's it's happy just chilling in your blood, uh, and then can be filtered by your kidneys. Um, and it's it's easily absorbed because you have a bunch of water in your mouth, you have a bunch of water in your stomach, you have a bunch of water in your intestines. Like <laughs> it 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 dissolves easily and then can be absorbed yeah. right away, uh, easy peasy. Um, so that's one commonality, easily absorbed, uh, readily excreted. Um, and so like as a result of that, you generally don't have to worry about overconsumption quite as much. Hmm. Like there are there are issues that can arise from overconsuming water-soluble vitamins, but it's a bit harder to achieve those things mm. um, without specifically like mega dosing some particular vitamin. So uh like vitamin c for instance like you're you're not going to to have an excess consumption of vitamin c from just like eating oranges or whatever but <laughs> if you take like a vitamin c supplement that mm -hmm. mega doses it maybe you could mm -hmm. um and most of the time the kind of resulting negative effects of over consuming water soluble vitamins are pretty mild and transitory so like vitamin c is another good instance of this if you overconsume vitamin C, like it causes a little bit of nausea, nausea. Mm -hmm. you might vomit, you might have diarrhea, and that vitamin C is out of your system within 24 hours. As long as you don't overconsume it the next day, like you're fine. Yeah. The exception, like the pretty major exception there is vitamin B6, which if you consume really, really high doses of vitamin B6, it can cause like neuropathies, like nerve problems Ooh. that are persistent. Mm -hmm. Like you damage the nerves and they just kind of stay damaged. Uh, but yeah, for, for the most part, yeah, water-soluble vitamins, easily absorbed, readily excreted. Yeah. T typically not needing to consume, needing to be too concerned about over-consuming yeah. them. Yeah. Is that just your body has an easier time kind of flushing them out when it needs to? Yeah, b because they can accumulate in fat tissue. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so, so that's one commonality. The second commonality is that all of them, the reason that they are considered essential nutrients is their function as either a coenzyme or cofactor. Do you know what those are, Lens? Um, I wouldn't be able to give you a definition, I don't think, but my understanding is like it is something that is required for like it's a it helps something else to kind of like work in the way that it's supposed to or be absorbed in the way that it's supposed to. Yeah, yeah, that I mean that that's that that definitely puts you in the right direction. Okay. Um so like there there are differences, like slight differences between co coenzymes and cofactors, and it's not really worth getting into them too much. But um, essentially, you a nutrient is a coenzyme or cofactor, um, if like based on how it interacts with enzymes. So just kind of like biology one hundred and one, most of the chemical reactions going on in your body don't really happen spontaneously. Some of them do, like for instance, creatine in your body, some of it will spontaneously degrade to creatinine. Um, but uh, most of the chemical reactions in your body that are occurring at pretty high rates are uh, facilitated by enzymes. So th those are little proteins that um, it's, it's, it's like the lock and key concept that you may have learned in like high school biology, like a single protein or multiple proteins or uh, as we'll talk about in a second, uh, different carbohydrates, 
like they link up with an enzyme and whatever reaction that needs to take place, two things being joined together, two things being split apart, the enzyme is the thing that facilitates that occurring. Mm. And what a coenzyme or cofactor does is uh, it, it basically facilitates that enzymatic process. So it could be the case that it's like absolutely critical where you have the enzyme, you have the molecule that it's supposed to build or break, you have both of those things together, but if you don't have the coenzyme to bind onto the enzyme, no reaction occurs. Mm. Like that's one kind. Uh, another kind is like, it could be a, a regulatory thing, which like, I don't think that's the case with the vitamins, but it could be that like, you know, maybe this particular enzyme can cause this reaction at a rate of three reactions per second, but you, you hook a cofactor coenzyme up to it and now it can do it at six reactions per second. Uh, and then kind of the third way that this could work is it might be that like you need to uh, like um, carboxylate a particular protein in order for it to be able to do like don't worry what any of these words mean. But you you might need to like carboxylate a particular protein to then facilitate another reaction. And you might have like a coenzyme that is the like carboxyl group donor mm -hmm. where it needs to be present uh, with the enzyme and the thing it's going to react with so that the enzyme can like take the carboxyl group from the coenzyme and hook it mm -hmm. onto the other thing. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, like... So it's not a thing in and of itself, but it is an essential ingredient for other things to be able to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like I, I think that's a good way of looking at it. Um, yeah, like it... it there are things that allow enzymes to do what they need to do. And yes. enzymes doing what they need to do is critically important right. because most of the reactions in your body are facilitated by enzymes. Um, so yeah, like that, that is what the water soluble vitamins do. Like they are considered essential nutrients because there are like important things related to protein synthesis, metabolism, whatever that need these coenzymes or cofactors to do what they need to do. Um, and, and if you don't consume these vitamins in sufficient quantities, those critical reactions can't take place. Uh, and I, I think that sometimes comes as a surprise to people, like that what the water-soluble vitamins are, yeah. are coenzymes and cofactors. Because I think like, those are vitamins you hear about all the time. Yeah. So it's like you, you don't do really think, think that about they're, what they're, they're doing. doing something by themselves, like yeah. that they themselves are doing something special. For sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, of the water soluble vitamins, the ones that people talk about the most by far are vitamin C and, uh, and folate and maybe like B12. Like I, I would potentially toss that one in there and no, no one talks about them as cofactors really. It's just like, oh, like if you're pregnant, you need to take folate to memory serves, like help with neural development, like maybe help with the neural tube closing, I don't know. I'm not a em embryology guy. Don't take that one to the bank. But yeah, it's it's something that's important for pregnant ladies. Yeah. Um, vitamin B12. I don't think people even think about what it does, but it's just like, oh, like my energy's low. I'm going to go to the doctor and get a B12 shot. Yeah. It will make me energetic for reasons that I have no idea how it works. Uh, and vitamin C, like people think about that as an antioxidant, uh, primarily because of, of Linus Pauling, like I mentioned before. Uh, but yeah, like, Vitamin C is absolutely an antioxidant, and there are absolutely other functions that some of these 
water-soluble vitamins have, but they are considered essential due to their role mm-hmm. as as a coenzyme or a cofactor. Uh, and so, like in vitamin C's case, like it is a strong indiscriminate antioxidant, but it's also a coenzyme for um, like some of the critical reactions in collagen synthesis. Okay. So if you don't consume enough vitamin C, like oh yeah, like maybe general levels of oxidative stress will be a little bit higher, but you'll be much more concerned about the fact that you're getting scurvy. And <laughs> scurvy is a connective tissue disorder. Like you you aren't consuming enough oh, vitamin C. Yeah. yeah. And so like the first sign is you start getting like little little petechia around your skin, just like little, um, they look like little spots where just like capillaries have ruptured. Oh yeah. Because like there is collagen in the walls of capillaries to maintain structural stability. If you can't turn it over and, and synthesize enough, Little capillaries will rupture. You get patechia. Uh, for for like powerlifters listening to this, if you've ever had like little spots on your face after pulling a max deadlift, that's what I was just thinking about. Yeah, you like, used to get that all the time. Yeah, that that's that's patechia. Yeah. Like your um your blood pressure gets in, in that case, it's your blood pressure getting high enough that it like ruptures those capillaries. But mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, but that's like, what it looks like. If if yeah. you're just spontaneously getting that uh, <laughs> because you're not consuming enough vitamin C, like that's kind of your first sign of scurvy. And then, uh, like your your um, like risk of joint injury starts going up, mm-hmm. like like tendon tears, ligament tears, like other collagenous tissues. You're more likely to break a bone, like your bones get more brittle. Like the strength of your bones comes from like the calcium and the minerals and whatnot. Uh, the the bit of flexibility they have comes from the collagen in your bones. Like bones are uh, discounting water. I think like thirty percent of the mass of bones is collagen. Um, you start bleeding from your teeth because <laughs> not good. Um, yeah, like you're in trouble if you're bleeding from your teeth. Yeah, like there there are collagenous tissues that are like holding your teeth into your mouth. Like oh, not God. and then like eventually you die. Like it's yeah, scurvy is nasty stuff. And um, yeah, like th- that's why vitamin C is an essential nutrient. Like it's anti- yeah, it's antioxidant functions. Who gives a shit if you're not able to synthesize collagen? Right. Um, and I feel like you hear about vitamin C and scurvy but like i didn't know that it was collagen yeah like i didn't know that that was the thing that actually matters and vitamin c is the thing that's just helping you be able to continue making collagen yeah like that that is what it does that that is why it's an essential nutrient um okay so those are the water soluble vitamins so many fun facts already thank you great job i appreciate that i think i think the most fun ones are yet are to come. yet to come maybe in this section maybe in the fiber section oh one of gosh, the two i can't wait uh so the fat soluble vitamins you have vitamins a d e and k um just a little fun fact to start with uh vitamin like all of these aren't single things um what so, do you mean so like vitamin like vitamin B1, for instance, is thiamine. Like there is a single molecule that is thiamine and thiamine and B1 are the same thing, like identical. Um, vitamins A, D, E, and K, like it, you, you assume that it's like a singular thing again because yeah. it's vitamin A, not vitamins A or vitamin A's or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, like... Are they things that are like usually together? Uh, it describes like a class of compounds okay so um like vitamin e for instance there's um like a whole class of compounds called tocopherols and there's another whole class of compounds called tocotrienols 
Never heard those words in my life. And there are multiple tocopherols and multiple tocotrienols that are collectively considered vitamin E. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with vitamin A. Like there are three types of preformed vitamin A. There's retinol, which I think is a lot of, in a lot of like skincare products. Yes. Uh, there's retinoic acid. Um, and there's retinol, which is like retinol, but the O at the end is, <laughs> is, an, a. is an A. Got it. Um, and then also uh, a lot of carotenoids are also considered vitamin A. Like uh, mm. a, a lot of like nutrient labels report vitamin A as like, uh, I forget the exact term, but basically like vitamin A equivalents. Mm-hmm. So um, like beta carotene, for instance, in carrots is kind of like half of a vitamin A molecule. And if your body needs vitamin A and there's beta carotene floating around, it can just link up a couple beta carotenes and now you have more vitamin A. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like the, the, it, it describes like multiple compounds, but they're all just, when, when, when we talk about them, we just talk about them as vitamin A or as vitamin E or whatever. Yeah. This might be a little bit too off topic, but like why are those things grouped together as vitamin A? Um, they're, they're all kind of like in the same lineage, I guess. Okay. Um, so like there, there are certain vitamin A things that like retinol particularly does. And there are certainly, there are like certain vitamin A things that like retinoic acid primarily does. I don't think retinol is used for quite as much stuff, but like, yeah, basically like some stuff use retinol, some stuff use retinoic acid. Um... And, like, the, the carotenoids themselves are, like, antioxidants. But, like, for them to be, uh, to do vitamin A stuff, like, they're converted to retinol first. Um, but, yeah, like, they, they come from kind of the same lineage. And, like, you can interconvert between them. And so it's, like, you could say they're, and a lot of it is just from a sense of practicality. Mm-hmm. Because you could say you need, like, I don't know, the, the vitamin A, RDA off the top of my head. But I think it's, like, 900 milligrams or micrograms one of the two whatever it doesn't matter but yeah you could say like oh you need um you know 200 grams of retinoic acid and or uh, milligrams and 700 milligrams of retinol but like it wouldn't matter because like if you did just need more retinol you could convert the retinoic acid to it and vice versa so yeah i mean that's okay that's why okay um and so yeah like they they all refer to to classes of compounds Mm -hmm. instead of just like one specific thing and really, they're, um, they don't have many commonalities beyond that. So they're typically a bit trickier to absorb because unlike things that are water-soluble, they're fat-soluble. And you have a lot of water in your mouth, stomach, and intestines. You don't have that much fat just floating around in mm-hmm. them. So um, typically, if you consume them and you want to absorb them well, it helps to consume fat-soluble vitamins with a meal mm. instead of on their own. Yep. Because, like, the fat in the meal will help quite a bit with absorption. And one general commonality that is not always the case um, is that your body can accumulate fat-soluble vitamins in your body's tissues. Like, it can store them in fat um, and just kind of, like, release it over time or whatever. And um, so, like, for instance, if you consume a bunch of vitamin C, like, most of it's going to be out of your system in a day or two. With vitamin D, for instance, um, for people with really, really low blood vitamin D levels, 
Sometimes doctors will prescribe very intermittent mega doses of vitamin D just to get their vitamin D levels on track, which might be like 50,000 IUs once a month or like once every two months or something like that um, because it's, it's fat soluble. So if you, you know, give someone a shitload of vitamin D, like a ton, their vitamin D levels can still be elevated a month later. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but that, that's not the case for all of them. Like vitamin K, for instance, doesn't accumulate in the body. Like it's, it's fat soluble, but like it behave like vitamin K behaves a lot like a water soluble vitamin. Like it's, pretty easy to absorb. It doesn't bioaccumulate in the body. And, uh, it, it is also like a, a coenzyme, um, helps with like it, the reason I, I pulled carboxylation a second ago <laughs> is like, it helps with carboxylation of like a particular step that's related to like both bone formation and blood coagulation. Um, but yeah, like it, it, <laughs> it, it, it is fat soluble, but it behaves a lot like a water soluble vitamin, mm. Whereas like vitamin D is just, it's a steroid hormone. Like it's, it's its own thing. Like it has, it's built on the same cholesterol backbone that like estrogen or testosterone or cortisol or whatever else would be. Um, it works like a steroid hormone. Like it diffuses into a cell, binds to a vitamin D receptor that translocates to the nucleus. It affects gene expression. And uh, unlike you know, vitamin K or water soluble vitamins that do one thing. Like it's a, it's again, like some of the water soluble vitamins also antioxidants, but like essential because it does one thing. Uh, vitamin D does a shitload of stuff because (laughs) it's a steroid hormone. Like it directly affects gene expression in like most cell lines. So, um, yeah, like the, the fat soluble vitamins are the wild west. Like there are, there are four of them, but Beyond the fact they're they're fat soluble, it's it's hard to pick out a ton of commonalities between them beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those that that just kind of gets your feet wet with vitamins. But I have some fun facts about vitamins. Okay, you want to hear them? Yeah. Okay. So first thing, have you ever wondered where the term vitamin comes from, or did that just kind of go down? smooth and it's like i don't need to know the etymology of that i i don't care why they're called vitamins yeah more that one okay yeah that's that's totally fair i'm a i'm a weird little freak when it comes to etymology like i i love knowing where words come from Mm -hmm. um but vitamins they're a their name is a mashup and also now kind of a misnomer so uh they were originally called vitamins uh and that coin was termed by dr casimir funk who's kind of like the father of vitamins. And um, it was a mashup of vital and amine, vital because you had to consume it, and amine because the first vitamins he discovered were amine compounds. Like mm. we talk about like amino acids, there's like it's a particular like nitrogen containing functional group that like determines if something's an amine or not. So yeah, like the first vitamins he found were amines that needed to be consumed to prevent diseases, uh, beriberi and pellagra. And so, uh, yeah, he was like, they're amines, they're vital, you have to consume them. Vitamine, like just fun little mashup. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so now, like these days, plenty of the compounds that are vitamins aren't amine compounds. Right. Like I, I mentioned vitamin D, like it's a steroid hormone, like it's not an amine. But vitamin had already caught on, both in general society and in the nut- the nutrition research community. Um, 
So scientists just drop the e from the end, and they're like, ah, well, they're not amines, but it we just, like this word, so word now. Yeah, yeah, we'll just call it vitamins. I guess that's easier to pronounce, anyways. It is. Uh, but yeah, so that's where the term vitamin comes from, which I think is fun. Um, second, when I was putting together the micronutrient content, I know, I know, you asked me this question, like. These, these names are crazy. Like, where did it come from? Like, mm-hmm. it's not uh, just concurrent. So with the letters themselves, you have A, oh, B, yeah. C, D, E, and then it jumps to K. Why does it jump to K? And for the B vitamins, we have 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 9, 12. Like, where's, mm-hmm. where's 4? Where's vitamins. 8? Um, yeah, so the the story behind those things is relatively simple, but I also think kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. First is vitamin K. Like, why is it a straggler? Why isn't it vitamin F? And uh, it's because it was discovered by a Danish scientist called Henrik Dam or Henrik Dam, uh, who published his results in a German language journal, uh, like uh, chemistry, biochemistry journal. And vitamin K helps with blood coagulation. It also helps with bone formation. But what, what Henrik Dam like discovered was that it was like a coenzyme for like one of the steps in blood coagulation. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why one of the reasons it's essential. And uh, coagulate in English is spelled with a C, but in both Danish and German, it's spelled with a K. Uh. And so vitamin K was originally called coagulations vitamin. And it <laughs> okay. was uh, eventually just shortened to vitamin K. And... Um, yeah, it just kind of stuck. Like people, people talked about it as vitamin K for long enough that when uh, folks kind of realize, like, oh man, we're we're just going through the alphabet otherwise, and it just jumps from E to K, um, they're just like, well, whatever. It's it's been K for yeah, long enough. We're we sticking with K. Um, and also, as we'll get into in a second with the B vitamins, people initially thought that there would be a lot more vitamins than there turned out to be. Um, so I, I don't know if this, this is the case, but it wouldn't surprise me if folks were like, ah, oh, we've got vitamin A, we've got some Bs, we got C, we got D. Like, we'll, we'll get to K eventually. So like, we can just stick with this as vitamin K and like, we'll, we'll fill in the other ones. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's the case, but like, it, it wouldn't surprise me. Right. Um, and yeah, like, just as another kind of fun fact there, like, this, this is a random K in something related to science due to Germany. And there are still, like, several holdovers of just, like, random Ks showing up and stuff where you would think they wouldn't belong due to kind of the, the primacy of German science in the early 20th century. So um, if, if you need to look at the electrical activity in your heart, typically these days in America, that will be called an ECG, an electrocardiogram. But you will still see, like, some doctors or, like, some hospitals and, like, particularly like older researchers Mm -hmm. sometimes still refer to it as an EKG because like that was just the general term up until like relatively recently um I still think of it as EKG I do too like I I grew up with with uh EKG yeah and like the switch to ECG seems feels to me like it's changed in the last like 10 years or so um yeah like it's it's the same thing like the EKG was invented in Germany and uh in Germany, electrocardiogram, like the cardio is spelled with a K, which is why it's an EKG. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that just, that is where vitamin K comes from and, and why it jumps from E to K. Uh, and then the missing B vitamins, like where is vitamin B4, mm-hmm. why, where is vitamin B8 or whatever? 
um, they used to be there. Uh, there used to be vitamin uh, B1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Um, th- uh, up to 16 was pretty oh, wow. solid. And then there were uh, sort of borderline pitches of people trying to pitch up to vitamin B20. And then some that had like letter subscripts where it's oh just my like, gosh. Eh, this is vitamin BZ, this is vitamin BK, whatever. Uh, but yeah, like pe- people were trying to toss a ton of B vitamins out there. And up to B16 were the ones that were considered solid enough that they were kind of like formally given those those numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, like so the background for that is that after Casimir Funk discovered the first vitamins in 1912, uh, all of the rest of the vitamins that we have were discovered in the, in the next 35 years. Damn. Um, so there was a big push, like in the early 20th century, to discover new vitamins because there was a lot of excitement about vitamins potentially curing diseases. Um, uh, like maybe close to all diseases, depending who you talk to. Yeah. Um, so I, I lied before I, I said B1 and B2 before, but it was B1 and B3, uh, uh niacin B3 deficiency causes Pellagra, uh, B1, uh, deficiency causes beriberi. Mm. And like, those were the first two he found, like, uh, there were two discrete understood disease states where they were caused by not consuming enough of this particular nutrient. If they consumed more of the nutrient, it stopped the disease. So boom, like like vitamin, it's these little things that like you don't consume them, you get disease, you consume them, it cures disease. Uh, And then- That would be exciting. And then more early research started coming out. Like people had known um, since I think the 1700s that consuming citrus prevented scurvy. Right. But and the, the pirates. Uh, do what? Pirates on ships. Yes. That's what I associate you, it with. You scurvy dog. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so they had known that citrus fruits, consuming citrus fruits prevented scurvy, but the actual compound that prevented scurvy was discovered in this era, that being vitamin C. Um, so, you know, that's another disease state that people were very well aware of at the time. Uh, and, and they already knew how to treat it, but it's like, oh, this is caused by not consuming this one nutrient. Consuming this one nutrient prevents or cures it. Um, vitamin B was discovered around this time, and it prevented or cured rickets, which, like, we don't think about rickets that much anymore. <laughs> mostly because people found out about vitamin D, and, like, now they make sure that, that little kids get vitamin D. But um, vitamin D is a condition of bone malformation, and, like, or, Rick, or, uh, rickets. rickets, I mean, yeah. is a condition of bone malformation um because like if you're not consuming enough vitamin d like you can't absorb calcium Mm -hmm. uh sufficiently and like incorporate it into bone and rickets used to be really common uh like especially in europe Mm. and probably even more people had like subclinical rickets uh like back in the day people were very very tiny like remember when we when we went to ireland and went to that castle and they had the suit of armor of the Lord of the Castle, and it it looked like a Halloween costume for a seven year old. Yeah, yeah, like, crazy. Like, people, All the door frames very yeah, short. Yeah, people used to be so tiny. Yeah, um, which like part of that was probably just low total energy intake, like general malnutrition. Yes, but, like specifically, uh, uh, like low vitamin D intake, and you're in Europe. You're at high enough latitudes that you're not getting oh, that yeah. much direct sunlight. Uh-huh. So 
people just wound up shorter. And if they really, really had low vitamin D intake, like maybe they weren't eating enough eggs or like drinking enough milk. Like those were the two things in their diet that had some vitamin, vitamin D in it. Um, yeah, they, they would get full blown rickets, which is like really serious bone malformation. Mm-hmm. You wind up very stunted, generally bow legged, um, like a lot of orthopedic issues throughout your generally quite short life. And uh, so, yeah, that used to be so common. And then we discovered vitamin D and found that, hey, you consume this stuff, you don't get rickets. That was fucking huge. Um, and so you can understand at this time yeah. why they were so hype about this and why they were like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Like we're, we're seeing all of these diseases that are around us all the time that we under that we understand to be like pervasive. We had no idea how to prevent it before. And it turns out they're, they're just these little guys in food that when you eat them, you, you don't get these diseases. And we're, we're discovering a lot of instances of that. So it, it generated this idea that it, it might be that most non-communicable diseases are just the result of vitamin deficiencies. Mm-hmm. And like, now we look back at that and we're like, ah, that's crazy. That's super reductive. But like for the time period, you can see why they would think, yeah, that, you know, that makes sense. Um, and so there was there was so much enthusiasm about this line of research. Yeah. Everyone wanted to discover new vitamins because like they're like, dude, like we don't want people dying of like all of this weird shit that people died of in Europe in, in like the early yeah. 20th century. Um, so there was just kind of a gold rush of people trying to discover new vitamins. And basically just people got out over their skis a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were things that uh, either they thought were essential based on some research that maybe was done poorly or misinterpreted that turned out to be non-essential, or they would find something that is like definitely a critically essential molecule that you can consume from your diet. But then further research found that like, oh no, like your body does produce that in sufficient quantity. So like it wouldn't be a vitamin, like it wouldn't be an essential nutrient Mm -hmm. because you do endogenously synthesize enough of it. Um, And so, yeah, just over time, there were a lot of things that were initially considered vitamins, uh, particularly B vitamins, in this initial rush of like just just delirious excitement about about vitamin research. That better, more sober research over time just kind of pruned the list back a yeah. little bit at a time, and they just never reordered it. Like <laughs> the, the wind was out of their sails. Yeah, I, I think that's the I think that's the big miss. Like. Once you realize that, like, vitamin B4 isn't a vitamin, which, uh, well, we'll get to this in a second. It, like, it kind of is again. Mm. Um, vi- vitamin B4 was choline. They oh. Con- yeah. Like, they, they considered it a B vitamin. And then they said, oh, no, like, your liver endogenously synthesizes it. It's non-essential. We're going to prune this along with the rest of them. And then, like, in the 80s and 90s, they started doing more research and realized, like, oh, you do endogenously synthesize it, but, like, you probably do need to consume some from your diet for good, like, liver health in particular. So, like, as of 1998, it's considered an essential nutrient again, but it's not, they didn't They didn't give it B4 status back. Like, <laughs> they gave it another name. It's, it's just its own thing now. All right. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so, like, there did used to be, like, B4, B7, B8, whatever. Um and yeah, they just uh, they just didn't reorder them, so kind of lazy. I I think they should have. Um, but yeah, that's that is why it it skips from E to K and why there are missing numbers in the B vitamins. So um, 
I, I think that that does lend itself to two just kind of like brief little discussion topics. Okay. One is about sort of like the history of science and like the the economic uh, concerns related to science. Mm-hmm. And the other is just kind of the, the history of like one weird trick approaches to medicine. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, for, for the first one, j- just as like kind of a note that yeah, maybe we can talk about, maybe we can riff on, maybe there won't be much to talk about. We'll see. But like with the, with the vitamin K and like that being a holdover from, from Germany thing, um, I think a lot of people, uh, don't stop to consider that like, it is kind of hard to disentangle science and economics, especially like basic sciences, like trying to discover new nutrients, like kind of bench work. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, most of the things that have German names that that uh, stick around to the modern day, like vitamin K or like EKG, like things like that, a lot of them were discovered or developed before World War II. Because mm-hmm. um, basically before World War II, Germany was like the economic powerhouse of Europe. Mm-hmm. And like it's it's getting back to that status again. But like from kind of like the early to like uh, basically in like the post-napoleonic period like prussia and the area of europe that became germany uh was just like crushing it like it, it was the industrial center of europe and science is expensive like a lot of this shit is not cheap yeah and um like these days america is the home of like a extremely disproportionate amount of scientific breakthroughs. Right. And the other countries where you see scientific breakthroughs coming from, you got like Germany, you got the UK, um, you got, you got China coming up the ranks these days, like sometimes Japan, sometimes South Korea, but like generally very prosperous societies. Mm-hmm. And that's because like, I, I think, I think people get like weird, I don't know, like, like racial or like cultural supremacist ideas like, oh, like these, these are the countries making these scientific discoveries because this is where all of like the best and brightest and smartest people are. I see. And like, that's true to some extent because of brain drain, because a lot of the best and brightest and smartest people are like, hey, I want to do research. So I want to go to a place with a lot of research funding. Um but by by and large, it's just a question of like what countries have excess money to dump into research. Like I don't know the number right off the top of my head, but like the the NIH and NSF, like uh, National Institutes of Health and National Science Foundation, their like relative funding is below what it was like pre two thousand eight, but it's still like billions and billions and billions of dollars. Um, whereas like you know like I'm I'm sure that there are like incredibly smart people in Indonesia that could do incredible research. Like if the Indonesian government just had like a spare $50 billion laying around, like they'd probably invested in like building schools and hospitals. Right. Um, so yeah, like, like pre-World War II, like Germany was destroyed in World War II. Like we, between the Americans and the Soviets, like, uh, we firebombed it back to the middle ages. The Soviets, uh, coming from the east also like fucked a lot of shit up so like it it took them a while to rebuild but before that like they they were fucking rich and so like a lot of science came from germany like pre-world war ii 
And like these days, a lot of it comes from the U.S. And, you know, rather than that being the result of just like, oh, this is where like all of the best and smartest people are. It is just more an economic thing. Like, oh, that's that's where all of the money used to be to just like dump into science. And Mm -hmm. now all of the money to or like a shitload of money to dump into science is like here or in China. And like, Mm -hmm. yeah, so that's. When, when people when people think about like the geographic like geographic distribution of of uh, like epicenters of science and where yeah. like breakthroughs are happening, I don't think they think about that. Yeah, but. and I wonder how that affects obviously like nutrition research, mm-hmm. so stuff like this where you're trying to figure out nutrients that are essential for humans on kind of like a broad span, like all humans this is essential for and like we were talking about with like vitamin d it's going to depend where you live yeah and how close you are to the equator so if you are having a lot of your research done in these specific epicenters that do not represent entire continents Mm -hmm. what does that mean for these recommendations that they're giving in terms of like what is actually essential when you're not representing like huge swaths of humanity yeah i i think i think that's a good point and honestly i don't know i don't know if we have the research to know whether that's a problem or not Mm -hmm. um it's like a, a good example is like in psychology research uh they've they've had a reckoning in the last decade or so Um, when it came to a lot of stuff related to like behavior and like personality types and, and stuff that was previously presented as like, oh, these are just universal facets of the human condition. Uh, they realized like, oh wait, like most of our research just comes from like affluent college students at like the 10 top universities, um, (laughs) that were like disproportionately white, disproportionately affluent, Mm -hmm. disproportionately well-educated. And so there, there's a term well, there's an acronym WEIRD, like most psychology research subjects historically have been WEIRD, which stands for people who are white, educated, from industrialized countries, and I don't remember what the R and D stand for. But yeah, like, yeah, and, and that's something that in that field has been recognized as a potential problem, potential blind spot. We need to redo a lot of this research with different people from different parts of the world, different cultures, different socioeconomic backgrounds. To see if some of this stuff is as solid and is as universal as was was previously believed. Yeah. With nutrition research, I, I do think that the example you brought up of vitamin D is a good one. Like I, I like I think that like if the hub of nutrition research globally was like Nigeria, I think like vitamin D would be considered a conditionally essential nutrient instead yeah. of essential. Because yeah, like for most of the people doing research on vitamins, like yeah, it's it's fucking folks at like Harvard or like in the UK and whatnot, like. Yeah, and in like Massachusetts or London, like vitamin D is absolutely an essential nutrient because mm-hmm. for a large part of the year, they're not getting enough direct sunlight for your skin to synthesize it. But yeah, if, if the research was centered somewhere closer to the equator, I do suspect it would probably be considered conditionally essential instead. Um, I'm not sure, though, if... I'm not sure the extent to which like nutrient needs differ from person to person yeah um 
like I mean, like there there is research on that. Like the as we'll talk about in episode two, kind of the range, like the the understood range of like vitamin or mineral or essential nutrient needs. Like it it is understood that there's quite a bit of variance from person to person. Mm-hmm. But like a lot of that research is still based on American or or Northern European populations, mm-hmm. and I I do think it's not inconceivable that people who live in different parts of the world who have maybe had like have descended from people who for tens of thousands of years have had very different dietary patterns. Exactly. There very well could have been like some genetic selection to select for people who like, I don't know, maybe, maybe like your ancestors going back 5,000 years, just like didn't consume much, um, like soybeans or like the specific foods that are like rich in choline. Mm-hmm. It very well could be that for you, choline is not an essential nutrient because like y- your your people just produce enough choline in their liver that it's fine. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe people who, you know, for the last few thousand years have been consuming more like choline rich foods. Maybe there just hasn't been as much like selection pressure for like high levels of endogenous choline. So, like, yeah. I, I, th- I think that that's a possibility um, I think that would be like I'm not confident that that is a dynamic that would exist. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's enough research to know if it is. Right. And if it if it does, I would anticipate that it would primarily be relevant for nutrients that are in kind of that hazy borderland between essential or conditionally essential. Like, you know, maybe well, maybe creatine, maybe maybe well definitely vitamin d maybe choline maybe niacin like like some of those but like stuff stuff like riboflavin or like folic acid like a lot of it is universal definitely essential yeah 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 um yeah so that that's the first thing just it is it is difficult to to disentangle science and economics generally and and a lot of what we perceive to be is like cultural advantages in science is just like oh this is the rich country like it has billions of dollars to dump into research Mm -hmm. uh the second thing uh, like i mentioned is um like early vitamin research and vitamin history does speak to the history of like one weird trick approaches or beliefs about medicine um so that's basically the idea that like there there is there is something or like a small number of things where like, if we get this right, we can prevent most diseases, cure most diseases, like everything's good. And so like, I think we look back and kind of scoff at folks in the, I don't know, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries who believed in balancing the humors to prevent diseases. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, like, ah, you're, you're too phlegmatic. Like that's why whatever is happening. Um, both both the idea of like bloodletting to like cure disease but also just the the general idea like how how simple were these people that they thought that like this one method of like balancing the humors could fix everything from like a toothache to impotence or whatever yeah um but like I don't think we've gotten too far past that. Uh, <laughs> it's it, kind of a quirk of just how our minds like to work yeah like yeah. it, it it's just like slightly more sophisticated now, and like, yeah, th- th- there there are there are elements of it that might be true, so it's easier to like give it a bit of a pass. So, um, yeah, like like 
the early research into vitamins was was a lot of it was animated by this idea that like yeah. we find vitamins we can cure most non-communicable diseases it'll be great well wh- i mean of course if they did have a couple situations in which that did happen like yeah the first couple that they found they were like oh everyone that we find we're curing a new disease like right. let's fucking go exactly and and there's there's a large space for discovery like mm-hmm. when you're setting out you don't know how many you're gonna find like it could be a dozen it could be a thousand yeah you know um i uh, yeah that's heartbreaking yeah <laughs> i feel so bad for them well i mean as i'll talk about in one second like there was an example of that that happened in our lifetimes mm. um so yeah like after after vitamins kind of the next big one was penicillin mm-hmm. um like it before people found out that uh anti uh antibacterial like resistance was a thing yeah uh or like drug resistant bacteria <laughs> dude penicillin fucking rocked like mm-hmm. it it was a wonder drug like it uh cure I, there were a bunch of people dying like in terms of communicable diseases you mostly have bacterial infections and viral infections and early on like before drug resistance kicked in penicillin did just knock the socks off of most bacteria that could infect humans yeah um and yeah i mean that was like what seven i think 17 years after um after vitamins were discovered like vitamins were 1912 i think penicillin was 1928 1929 um and then you know you fast forward a few years i've mentioned linus pauling before but like there was there was an idea that was like now we look back at it as a fringe theory but um a lot of like serious people thought that vitamin c was like legitimately a wonder drug back Mm -hmm. in the day um they didn't understand like all of the nuances or hardly any of the nuances of like redox biochemistry and why just like indiscriminately throwing a ton of antioxidants into your body isn't actually a good thing won't actually do all of the things that you think it will do Mm -hmm. but yeah like people did used to think that like most kind of like what we now think of as like serious diseases like back in the day it was a lot of like communicable diseases uh, and a lot of the non-communicable diseases like rickets or pellagra or beriberi were like nutrient deficiencies um these days like we're we're pretty good at treating a lot of communicable diseases but the non-communicable diseases that we're worried about like heart disease cancer like a lot of things along those lines for various reasons a lot of very serious folks thought that like mega dosing vitamin c would would radically reduce your risk of those things and and significantly extend human lifespan which is another kind of like one weird trick type of thing um and the example of something in our lifetimes like people people don't remember like how hype people were about this but the human genome project like it wasn't the the dreams of the human genome project weren't quite like as unbridled or as expansive as the dreams of like the early vitamin researchers mm-hmm. but i mean in the 90s when it was going on like we we just had a much poorer grasp of like genetic regulation like i think people kind of knew that like epigenetics were a thing but eh, like eh, shit was still like very <laughs> hazy um just the the like genes themselves are important but like 
Um, gene expression is also very important, and that's like another huge entire can of worms. Because, um, yeah, like a, a lot of the early stuff that was known about genetics was also like pretty simple. Mm-hmm. It's like there there is a single gene that if there's a single like nucleotide substitution, you either have normal blood cells or you have sickle cell. Um, like very simple. There was like a single gene that was like the cause of Huntington's disease. Again, like very simple. And there was a lot of uh, excitement that that would be the case for a lot of genes. Like yeah. we, we unraveled the genome and a lot of these non-communicable diseases that, that seem to have a genetic component, like, you know, higher rates of certain cancers and certain family lines or whatever. Like, yeah, as soon as we decode the genome, we will be able to like solve all of that stuff. It just hasn't come to fruition because at every step in the way, like biology is way more complex and and stymies your efforts harder and more robustly than people ever <laughs> assume that it will. Like and and yet we keep doing it again and again. Yeah, and and the thing is, like, it's so it's so tantalizing, right? Of because because in all of these cases, uh, except for like the vitamin C being a wonder drug thing, but like in all of the other cases, like there there was. There were easy wins to start with. Yeah. You know, like there were the, the first like four or five vitamins that were discovered did like cure diseases and absolutely just directly save lives. And it really was that fucking simple. Mm-hmm. And so like it's not unreasonable to think like there might be some more easy wins like this. Like with penicillin, like it, it fucking worked, man. Like it was incredible. Uh, and like, you know, bef- before people, before there were drugs to treat bacteria, why would people even be thinking about like drug resistance you yeah know? so you like i didn't think about that like they must have been like damn it yeah but yeah so like, i didn't think of this like easy win like it seems that simple the yeah. early genetic conditions we knew about were like easy genetic like we're yeah. talking like single gene issues instead of like most stuff which is massively polygenic um so yeah there's like bio- biology is a cruel bitch to researchers <laughs> where at, at first it just seems like Oh man, you just discovered this thing and 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 it is it is just so simple. Like everything else you've learned about biology to this point super complex, but this time, yeah. This time it's different. This time it's easy, this time it's simple. And that that just lures people in. And then the more you learn, the more you realize like, oh, of of the applications of the things we're learning about, 2% of the applications are simple, and then beyond that it just gets messy as hell again. Um and yeah, so I, I think that that's like a common thing that extends up to the modern day. Like even within the last 10 years or so, like two other examples that come to mind, which which had like less broad cultural purchase than say like Linus Pauling and vitamin C did, but that do still have like purchase um, amongst people who uh, at least had purchase amongst people who are like pretty serious and pretty well-read. Um were, were, like, some anti-aging compounds. So, like, a few years back... Like, do you remember how hype people were about resveratrol? Yes. Uh, yeah, like, a lot of that stuff hasn't panned out. Like, it was supposed to be a wonder drug that would, yeah. like, improve life, lifespan. Basically an exercise mimetic, in a way. Um, yeah, like, it, yeah. It, it, it didn't really pan out. Um, and a new one that, like... I don't know if you've heard of this one. Have you heard of NMN? No. So it's uh, nicotinamide adenine mononucleotide. Um, yeah, like it's, uh, it's actually a lot of the same people who were promoting resveratrol before. They were like, ah, we may Lightly. have struck out with resveratrol, but like 
Let's go like, again. Yeah, like this time we have it. You, like you take NMN, like it's going to help you be way healthier, live way longer. And like, I believe it when I see it, you know, mm-hmm. like there, there is a long history of just simple explanations, things seeming like wonder drugs or wonder interventions that just just don't pan out over time. Um, and yeah, like the, the, the sorts of claims, like it does seem like things do are like gradually becoming like more and more epistemically grounded. Like there's, it's less like, Oh, we discover vitamins. We will cure all non-communicable diseases. And now it's more like, Hey, like, like this thing will help like 70% of the things that might break down as you're aging, but like, yeah, yeah, some stuff will still go, but it, it is like, it's the same DNA over time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's easy to judge the early vitamin researchers but I don't think we've actually come all that far. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I think that's enough about vitamins. Yeah. Uh, move on to minerals. Let's do it. So uh, minerals, they're a bit trickier to classify than vitamins. You don't, you can't just, um, you know, draw lines say here are the water soluble ones here are the fat soluble ones whatever mm-hmm. um so minerals are all inorganic elements um rather than organic compounds and we generally consider something to be a mineral if it is an element that is essential for normal health and development excluding the four major elements found in organic compounds so like you know, you wouldn't call like carbon a mineral. You wouldn't call nitrogen a mineral because, yeah, like we have this whole thing, organic chemistry. Yeah. Like that's that's where those things go. <laughs> and um, yeah, like like minerals are the inorganic elements. Like everything except for carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen that might be uh, like important for human health. And so of the remaining elements, like the, the non-organic elements, um, we know for sure that some are essential for uh, healthy development, good health, normal function. Like for example, calcium and magnesium, like there's there's not any debate about that mm-hmm. really. Um, but there is like a surprising amount of scientific debate about some things that may or may not be minerals. Hmm. Like they're, they're definitely inorganic compounds. They definitely do something in the body, but then there's debate about like, are they actually critical for normal development, human human health, etc. Um, so I think like the best example of this would be uh, chromium. So public health authorities in the U.S. consider chromium to be an essential element, like uh, they consider it to be a mineral. Uh, public health officials in Europe do not. Oh wow. Um, and I controversial I, topic. Yeah, I, I didn't look into it enough to fully understand like why there's why That's there's okay. disagreement there. But yeah, they, they basically look at the same body of research. The American scientists are like, yeah, there's enough to say chromium's essential. European scientists say, eh, I'm not so sure. Um, and then there are also elements that like the body seems to be adept at handling, and there's like certain there's like circumstantial evidence to suggest that maybe they're essential who knows but like no critical function has been identified yet and may not be identified Mm. um so I'll, i'll talk about that more a little bit later um but with all of that said there are at least 15 elements besides the one in 
the ones in organic compounds that we know to be essential for human health. Those are sodium, magnesium, phosphorus, sulfur, chlorine, potassium, calcium, manganese, iron, cobalt, copper, zinc, selenium, molybdenum, and iodine. And of those 15, only 14 are generally considered to be minerals. Uh, the, the odd one out in that list is cobalt, um, because cobalt is incorporated into vitamin B12. Vitamin B12 is essential for human health. But if just you yourself consume cobalt, it's not really going to do much. And you yourself can't synthesize vitamin mm. B12. So it is an essential element, but not in its mineral form, like not just consuming cobalt by itself. Um, but yeah, so there, there are at least 14 minerals. Um, but as, as previously mentioned, uh, who knows, maybe there's a 15th, maybe chromium, who knows? Uh, hope. Hopefully the, the guys and gals in the U.S. and Europe can hash it out and come to a consensus Stop on that fighting, at some point. guys. Let's come together. Yeah. And um, then there's also, like I mentioned, circumstantial reasons to believe that other elements maybe are minerals, maybe are essential elements. Who knows? So is that um, just like if you eat them, they just like hang out in your body and researchers are like, we don't know what it's doing? It's actually the opposite. Okay. So... Um, okay, Ele elements that are absolutely absolutely not essential. When you consume them, your your body like I'm I'm anthropomorphizing like carrier proteins Perfect. now, but yes, whatever like, you, you'll get helpful. the point. Um, when you consume something that's like definitely not essential, your body just kind of looks at it like what the fuck's going on here? Yeah. Like hopefully it doesn't actually get into your body. Hopefully it just kind of goes through and you excrete it, you yeah. poop it out. It's good. But if it gets into your body like lead or, mer or mercury, for instance, your body's just like, what the fuck do I do with this? You uh -huh. know, um, it might kind of like sequester it away in adipose tissues, like a lot of like <laughs> environmental pollutants that your body doesn't know what to do. It's with. a it's junk like, drawer. Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah. like for, for a lot of stuff, like adipose tissue is just like kind of the junk drawer. Like we'll, we'll yeah. just sequester that over there. Um, but there's, there's not like a tidy way to excrete it. Like... Once something gets in your body, like once it's been absorbed and you can't poop it out anymore, mm -hmm. um, you either need to like metabolize it to more basic stuff that you can sweat out, exhale, or urinate, or you just need to be able to exhale it, uh, urinate it, or sweat it out kind of directly. Like th those right. are the only way stuff leaves. And for stuff like lead or mercury, like you can't do that. Like it gets in your body and it just fucking chills there. Mm -hmm. um, and so like the the kind of circumstantial reason to think that some of those other elements might be um might be essential D did i already list them i can't remember the 15 no no the 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 ones kind of in this category that may be no. essential i don't think i did yeah so the the list is lithium boron fluorine uh silicon vanadium nickel uh bromine and strontium so, like, the, the commonality between them is that basically if you consume them and absorb them, your your body acts like it knows what to do with them. Mm -hmm. Like, there are carrier proteins that can link up with them. Like, you can excrete them well. Like, your your body handles them the way it would handle other minerals. Like, it, it seems like mm -hmm. it knows what to do with them. Yeah. Which may imply on some level that they are potentially serving important biological functions. But like a lot of them are di are very difficult to study, uh -huh. um, so a lot of 
a lot of like nutrition research to identify if something is an essential nutrient or not. Um, they'll do like depletion repletion studies where, say for instance, if you wanted to find out if if uh, vitamin B5, pantothenic acid, was essential or not, you would basically put together like a, like a Soylent-esque product mm -hmm. that had enough calories and macronutrients and all of the other micronutrients to keep someone alive, uh, but it wouldn't have vitamin B5. And so you would just give that to people for... I think like the common the common depletion period is like two or three weeks or something like that. And then just like see like does shit start fucking up? Mm -hmm. um, and then to see what nutrient needs are, once you establish it like, hey, people aren't consuming this nutrient, bad stuff is starting to happen. You start gradually titrating the dose back up. Mm -hmm. And for your group of people, you see like when symptoms start going away. And when they've gone away for either all or basically all of your subjects, you're like, okay, like that's the RDA. Um, I mean, the actual like RDAs and recommendations themselves, they're, they're based on like more research than just like one study. But that's kind of how a single study establishing both whether or not a nutrient is essential and how much of it you need to consume. Like that's a common research design for that type of research. Um, but something like fucking strontium, for instance, like... It is such a trace element that, like, like if if it were necessary, I mean, you would be consuming like two micrograms per day. That might just be like dust that you inhale in the air. <laughs> so, like, you can't do a classic depletion repletion study yeah. because, like, you're 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 not gonna. I mean, like, you can you can do a depletion repletion study on something that you need to consume like two hundred micrograms of, but if it's like four micrograms. Then it's a, a completely different ball game, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no way to ensure that you're not actually accidentally going to consume a little bit of it. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's also like it's a, another kind of type of research to establish if something's serving a critical function or not is just like bench research. It's like, hey, we've got substrates, we've got enzymes, like here in solution, and like. If we add whatever to the solution, um, like like does it have an effect? And like and like oftentimes it's like you would you would isolate like the enzymes and and like molecules they work on like in in the body itself. Like try to observe that somehow like in maybe an intact cell. And there's there's just like so little of a lot of these elements that like if they were doing something it, they would be like hard to find in the yeah. first place. You know. Yeah. Um, anyway, in, in most cases, like, I think most people believe that, like, they're probably not essential mm -hmm. and a better, like, more accurate explanation for why your body can handle those elements as if they were essential. Uh, th there are two potential explanations. One is that, like, maybe they were essential, uh, nutrients for something that we evolved from mm. and just like the... Yeah, just like the proteins that would handle those pro those uh, those other elements were just preserved by evolution. Yeah. Like there was no selection pressure to get rid of right. them. So it's like, yeah, maybe one of our distant ancestors did need to consume silicon, but like we don't. But like we still just have those enzymes in our DNA because like why not? Like mm -hmm. we, ha we still have the genes for fucking gills and we haven't had gills in a long time. <laughs> um, so like who knows? Uh, so that's one potential explanation. The other one is just that like, a lot of them are 
are like chemically similar, like on a molecular level, two things that are essential nutrients. Um, so for instance, strontium is in the same column of the periodic table as magnesium and calcium are. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's just below them on the periodic table. Um, but so things that are in the same column on the periodic table have like similar numbers of like valence electrons, like similar like electronegativity type characteristics. Yeah. And so yeah, it, it could just be that like the enzymes that do what they do to calcium can also like handle strontium in a similar way because it's a it's a related yeah. element. Um and yeah, so I, I think that's most of it. But it's it's basically like there is a list of other elements that we we can't yet close the door on completely. Mm-hmm. Like they're probably not essential, but we don't know that for sure. And the way the body handles them, like who knows, maybe they are, but but probably not. Um, the exception there, though, uh, kind of like I was talking about with creatine before and how nebulous the idea of good health or normal function is, um, is like you could make the case for lithium that it might be a an essential element or like conditionally essential um it's like there's pretty decent evidence that higher levels of lithium in drinking water are associated with lower suicide rates and lower rates of hospital admission for psychiatric problems um so there Mm. was a meta-analysis published in 2021 and for suicide rates in particular there were 14 studies with a total of 94 million people in Oh, my them. gosh. Um, so, like, on the surface, pretty strong. Uh, it is worth noting that there was significant heterogeneity between the studies included in the meta, and there was some evidence of publication bias. But there, there is at least, like, reasonably decent indication that, um, yeah, n- like, not, not taking enough lithium to, like, knock you out, like, you know, actual like psychiatric medical doses, but like a little bit of lithium in the, in the drinking water seems to make people a little happier, a little less likely to kill themselves. Okay. But but like, you know, how far down that road do you need to go (laughs) before you consider it like good health, normal function? Cause again, like most, most people aren't going to get admitted to the hospital for psychiatric issues. Most people aren't going to kill themselves. Yeah. But like we do see like, uh, again, I don't want to overstate it because of the heterogeneity pop, potential publication bias, but there there is at least like indication that like mm, like mm-hmm. a little bit of lithium seems to help a lot of people do a little better. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, kind of where do you draw that line and say like, oh, th- this is good health and normal function, but this isn't. Like it's yeah, once again, like kind of hazy. I think I think there is a discussion that could be had there. Um. But yeah, so long story short with minerals, um, we there we don't actually have a tidy list of what should be classified as minerals. There are 14 that are definitely minerals, like definitely essential inorganic elements. Um, you, have, you have chromium as like the strongest maybe of the mm-hmm. other additional, like in the US it would be a mineral, in Europe it wouldn't be. And then there are eight other like very more tenuous maybes where yeah i think maybe you could make a case potentially for lithium i think maybe you could potentially make a case for fluorine i don't think there's much there for like silicon or vanadium or strontium but like yeah that door's that door is is cracked to just like the smallest sliver. like (laughs) i i don't think anyone is holding their breath thinking that like vanadium is actually a mineral but it's not like 
completely ruled out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, this is a topic for another day, but um, uh, one of the other ones on the list was boron. And there are a lot of uh, a lot of people on TikTok these days thinking boron is oh, really yes. good for you. The people yeah. drinking borax. I've heard of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that is a conversation for another day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I think, uh, oh, oh, uh, and just like the last thing to say about minerals is much like, um, much like fat soluble vitamins, like I mentioned before, like it, it is hard to just categorize them as just like, oh, minerals do X. Like it's, it's not like water soluble vitamins where they're all coenzymes or cofactors. They do a variety of different things. So like calcium straightforward helps maintain bone health. Also helps with like muscle contractility, like timing of heart contraction, stuff like that. Um, sodium and potassium are primarily necessary for helping maintain the bioelectrical potential across uh, membranes of cells to help with like nerve conduction and, and skeletal muscle contraction, like responding to the, the neural stimuli they get. Uh, chlorine doesn't do a heck of a lot, but what it does do is extremely important. Uh, you need to consume chlorine so your body can make hydrochloric acid uh, for your stomach, like to help Mm. with digestion. Um, Iron is important because it's a component of hemoglobin and myoglobin, which your body uses to transport oxygen. Other minerals also just function as cofactors. Um, Selenium, uh, I'll talk about selenium more in a later episode, but it's wild. Like it's it's incorporated into these proteins called selenoproteins that do like a bunch of crazy shit. And um, selenium, no, no one fucking thinks about selenium. But as as I was doing reading on this stuff, I think selenium is my favorite nutrient now, just because there's a lot of like <laughs> there's a lot of weird shit about it. It was fun. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's good for minerals. Okay, so we've done vitamins, we've done minerals. How about essential fatty acids? All right, so. The name themselves tell you what it is. They're they're fatty yeah. acids. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're essential. They're essential. They're necessary for normal health and function. Your body can't make them itself, though. So you need to get them from your diet. Um, and, uh, yeah. So they're... Um, all of the essential fatty acids are either classified as omega-3 or omega-6 fats. We'll, we'll, I think we'll talk about them more in a later episode as well, but... They, they have a wide variety of functions in the body, but are primarily implicated in regulating and influencing pro- and anti-inflammatory processes. Um, there's been a lot of scaremongering about omega-6 fats. Like, if, if you've heard people uh, talking about, like, seed oils and, like, fear-mongering about that, yeah. it's mostly about linoleic acid, like the okay. omega-6 that is an essential fatty acid. Um, yeah, we, we might talk about that in, in a later episode. Um, but yeah, there, there's not too much more to say about them. But I was wondering, do you know what the omega means in omega-3, omega-6? No. Um, so yeah, it, it's a... Yeah, pe- people talk about omega-3 and omega-6 fats, and I don't think they know what they're talking about <laughs> most of the time. Um, you don't know what that word means. But it, it's it's just like a weird little scientific naming convention. Like... So you know from you know from the Bible when God says I am the Alpha and the Omega the the beginning and end yeah he says that um, so that's it's like that usage of Omega which like I don't I don't know why 
you know what? I don't know the Greek alphabet. I'm I'm probably going to fuck this up and Pac is going to message me and be like, you're an idiot. You don't know the Greek alphabet. But I think Zeta is is their last letter. But it's... It is, seems like it would be. Yeah, but it's... uh Yeah, so like Omega is sometimes used to denote like finality, kind of the alpha and the omega, the the beginning and end. Like that, uh-huh. that's the, oh, the yeah. implication there. Uh-huh. But yeah, I think Zeta is the last letter, so I don't I don't know where Omega got that connotation from, but it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, Omega three, Omega six is basically talking about counting back carbons from the end of the carbon backbone of the fatty acid. So fats basically have like long, straight ish carbon backbones. They might have little bins if it's an unsaturated fat, but basically you just have carbon bonded to carbon bonded to carbon. And they're, and those carbons are also bonded to uh, hydrogen molecules, like coming off of that carbon backbone. Mm-hmm. And when a pair of carbons is like a pair of carbons that are next to each other are only bound to one hydrogen instead of two, that basically means they have an additional valence electron they can form an additional bond with. So instead of a single bond to the next carbon, it'll form a double bond with the next carbon which causes a little a little kink in that chain. Mm-hmm. And um, an omega-3 fat is if you go from the start of the fat chain all the way to the bottom. So like the the top end is what would be bound to the, the glycerol. Like if it was a triglyceride, like that's the start. And then the end is basically the, the tail, like the carbon furthest away from the one that would be bound to the glycerol. Um, so that, that is the omega carbon. And so you basically just count back three bonds from there. And if that is a double bond, like a point of unsaturation, then it's an omega-3 fat. If you count back six and there's a bend there, then it's an omega-6 fat. Okay, I see. And basically, like, there is, like, a single specific enzyme. So, like, your body has enzymes that can convert saturated fat to unsaturated fat at various places. But, like, you need a... Like enzymes are hyper specific a lot of a lot of the times, and so like you need a specific enzyme to cause a desaturation at that like third position or at that sixth position mm-hmm. that an enzyme that can desaturate a carbon at the ninth position like wouldn't be able to do. Yeah. Um. And so yeah, like we we just don't have the enzymes to desaturate that like third omega position bond. Um, oh. Okay. And yeah, so that's why it's essential. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Going to move on. Essential amino acids. Yeah. I, I think most people listening to this podcast, this will be old hat. Amino acids are the building blocks of protein. Um, and essential amino acids are the ones that you can't produce on your own, meaning you have to consume them from your food. Of the 20 amino acids that your body uses to build most proteins, nine are considered to be essential. Those are histidine, isoleucine, leucine, lysine, methionine, phenylalanine, threonine, tryptophan, and valine. And there are six other amino acids that are considered conditionally essential. Mentioned that earlier in the episode, but essentially means your body can usually synthesize them in sufficient quantities if you didn't consume them from your diet. But there are situations where you may not be able to synthesize them in sufficient quantities, in which case they would become essential. And those conditionally essential ones are arginine, cysteine, glutamine, tyrosine, glycine, and proline. Um, and yeah, there's not too much more to say about that. Basically, if you don't consume enough of an essential amino acid, like bad shit can happen. Um, 
realistically, the ones you need to worry about, like if realistically, most people listening to this don't need to worry about it at all. Nice. Um, like it really be, only becomes an issue if just like overall protein intake is really low, which this is a fitness podcast. A lot of people listening to this consume a they shitload do not of protein. Have that problem. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, so yeah, if if total protein intake is really low or if you're just a vegan and a very picky eater and don't like consuming any of the number of like great complete protein, like vegan protein sources like soy, mycoprotein, like there, there are plenty, quinoa. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like if, if you just only liked rice, um, like rice is really low in lysine. So like you could have a lysine deficiency. Uh, but yeah, like lysine, methionine, and tryptophan are really the only ones that most people would need to worry about. Lysine, if you just are a vegan and just really fucking like cereal grains and you don't like beans um, or like soy or anything else. Uh, uh, methionine, if you just really like beans and uh, legumes and pulses and don't really like anything else. <laughs> um and tryptophan, if you're just a big cornhead and don't... <laughs> cornhead. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, yeah, so so most diseases resulting from essential amino acid deficiencies, uh, you mostly only see it in the developing world where there is just yeah. like a staple crop that like mm-hmm. 90% of your calories come from. Um, and even then, it's still like relatively uncommon because even if 90% of your calories are coming from rice, like... Ah, you eat some soybeans from time to time, or maybe like a splash of milk, and like that's usually sufficient. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe not to like maximize hypertrophy, but just to prevent diseases that would result from like an actual deficiency in an in in essential amino acid. Yeah. So yeah, like it's um, yeah, it, it's one of those things to be aware of. But I think that, like, I mean, w- I don't think we're particularly biased here. Like we we are both omnivores. Yes. Um. But, you know, so we're, we're not just trying to, like, carry water for, for vegan nutrition. But, like, I do think a lot of omni- omnivores who maybe, like, don't like the idea of veganism for uh, either for reasons that they're not fully aware of themselves or for reasons that they wouldn't want to articulate to a vegan <laughs> will express that concern as, like, ooh, where are you going to get your protein? What about, like, essential amino acid deficiencies? Uh-huh. And, like... You ba- you basically never need to worry about that. Like, even if you're a vegan, if you consume a varied diet, um, and like if you really like rice, maybe sometimes have some beans or like sometimes consume soy products. Like it's gonna be fine. Yeah. Um, okay. The last three little weird ones we have: choline, fiber, and water. Choline it exists in a state of limbo. It is like basically a vitamin, and like I mentioned before, it used to be a vitamin. It used to be vitamin B4. Um, But medical and scientific organizations haven't, like, reclassified it as a vitamin again. Um, Probably because, like, at this point, there is kind of a convention for the water-soluble vitamins. Like, they're all coenzymes or cofactors. Choline isn't. um, Like, it does other stuff. Uh, But, yeah, your, your body can produce choline in your liver, but it doesn't produce enough for, like the best possible health outcomes, much like niacin. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, it doesn't neatly fit into any of the other categories of essential nutrients like vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids, essential amino acids, 
but it is still an essential nutrient that's just kind of like hanging out in its own category. Um, choline is used to produce a couple uh, phospholipids that help preserve the structural integrity of cell membranes. And it's also uh, like an important um, component of acetylcholine, which is one of your body's most abundant neurotransmitters. Um, and yeah, like used to be considered a vitamin, then was kicked off the list. And then as of 1998, it was, it was reestablished as an essential nutrient, which I, I do think um, is good to know. Like 1998 wasn't that long ago. Yeah. And most of the things related to vitamins were, yeah, like there, there was that like mad, mad rush uh, in the 35 years after the first vitamins were discovered. But like, it is still an active topic mm -hmm. of, of concern and research. Like within the lifetimes of most of the people listening to this, a new essential nutrient was added in the form of choline, which is fun. Um, moving on to fiber. So fiber is not actually uh, traditionally considered an essential nutrient by um, like scientific bodies uh, and like public health sources. Which I do also think, again, like speaks to the haziness of the definition of an essential nutrient because uh, it's not like if you don't consume fiber, you'll die. Like you'll be fine. Like you can live without ever consuming fiber, but it does also, it, it, it will likely increase your risk of like colon cancer. And mm. so it's like, hey, what? how do we define normal health and good function? Is yeah. it like going through life with a 5% rate of colon cancer or like a 15% rate of colon mm -hmm. cancer? Like, you know, does that shift in risk uh, change how you think about good health, normal function? Yeah, again, philosophical question for other people to deal with. Um, but I, I did want to talk about it uh, in this episode and also in this series, just because like IIFYM people, like, and, and I assume most people listening to this know that acronym, but that is if it fits your macros, um, people who mostly or almost entirely just pay attention to, uh, total calorie intake and, mm -hmm. and macronutrients like, uh, protein, uh, carbs and fat. Um, a lot of them will say like, oh yeah, but like you also need to consume enough fiber. That is kind of like the one bone they'll oh, throw yeah. towards, towards like macros, not necessarily being everything like, yeah, eat some fiber too. So mm -hmm. I, I did want to talk about fiber a little bit, um, but I did, I did notice something that was kind of funny that I, I assume was just like an error that an editor missed. But um, yeah, like fiber is not generally considered an essential nutrient because yeah, you can you can live without fiber your whole life. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, like A&D, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, like the people who license dietitians in the U.S., um, I, I found a journal article uh, from them from like 2015, 2016 that just like categorically says fiber is not an essential nutrient. And then I found an article on their website um, published like five years after that journal article that starts with the line fiber in, is an essential nutrient. And like, Whoa. and like, I think the article is just wrong. Like at least, <laughs> at least in terms of communicating uh, A&D's stand on yeah. this. Um, but I, I did find that kind of funny. Just like, very categorical statements from the same organization saying completely different yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, like, like I said, I just, I just found that funny. I assume it's just a flub though. I think it's funny because it speaks to kind of the haziness of this. Like even on their website, you're like, what the fuck? I don't, is it essential or not? Yeah. They don't know. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, yeah, so fiber is a broad class of indigestible carbohydrates. Um, so like most of the carbohydrates you would consume would be starches, mm-hmm. which are just long chains of sugar molecules that are that are bonded together. Um, and fiber is the same way. It is also like it's a carbohydrate. It's it's composed of sugar molecules that are bonded together, much like starch. So what is the difference between starch and fiber? Do you know or, or did you know before looking at the outline? I don't know. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, it, it, basically the raw material is the same, but uh, like I was talking about before with how like hyper-specific enzymes are, mm-hmm. the primary difference between most, start, or, uh, most fibers and starches is just the type of bonds between the sugar molecules. Okay. So in starches, um, it, like a, a amylose, for instance, like most basic starch, you don't need to know what that is. It's fine, whatever. Um, but it's just composed of glucose molecules that are bonded together uh, by alpha glycosidic bonds. And like, you don't need to know what the alpha means, but it, it's basically just a description of how the the bonds are orient like the bond is oriented relative to like the two glucose like the two glucose molecules that are next to each other. Um, so yeah, the, it's bonded together with an alpha glycosidic bond. Versus cellulose, which is, I think, the most common type of fiber we consume. It's the primary structural component of plant cell walls. Mm -hmm. Um, It is exactly the same as amylose. It is also just a long string of glucose molecules bonded together. Um, But instead of it being alpha glycosidic bonds, it is beta glycosidic bonds, which same... Like, it's even still, like, covalent bonds. Like, it's the same type of bond. It's the same molecules, but just, like, the orientation of it is a little bit different. So it's a beta-glycosidic bond instead of alpha. And we have enzymes that can break down alpha-glycosidic bonds. So we can digest amylose just fine. And uh, we can't digest cellulose at all. Can't even make a dent in it. Okay. Because we just don't have that that yeah. correct enzyme. Um and yeah, like that's that is the main difference. Um, so yeah, the the difference between like like a, a a tree and a potato have similar carbohydrate content, but the reason we can eat and digest a potato and not a tree is that just the the type of bonds between the the glucose molecules, which I think is fun. Um, so there are t- 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 three fun little facts i have about fiber okay one of them might be a fake fact but we'll see what that's not a fact then and if it's fake i'll also give you the real one um okay okay so number one is by and large the enzymes that we produce to break down and digest carbohydrate uh, are enzymes that break down alpha glycosidic bonds not beta glycosidic bonds like i was saying before Mm -hmm. and the most notable exception to that is the enzyme lactase which is what breaks down lactose. Yes. Um, so yeah, lactose is a disaccharide. Like it's composed of two sugar molecules. It's a galactose and a glucose molecule bonded together with a beta glycosidic bond. And that could, that like may potentially at least partially explain why lactose intolerance is fairly common. Just because like lactase itself is a weird enzyme. Yeah. Like we don't produce much of that type of enzyme. Like mm-hmm. an enzyme to break a beta glycosidic bond weird like we, we just don't do that mm-hmm. um so i think that's cool like yeah. they, 
that is a potential partial explanation for for why like lactose intolerance is relatively common but like starch intolerance isn't um the one that might be fake news um <laughs> is so okay the conventional explanation for where coal came from uh like like you know charcoal like right you, you burn it get electricity um the conventional explanation for that also relates to how hard it is to break beta glycosidic bonds okay so the the conventional explanation is that large plants produce a particular type of fiber called lignin and uh the like plants evolved the ability to produce lignin before um, the fungus that is predominantly responsible for breaking down lignin in dead plants before it evolved. So like there are like some little microorganisms that can break down lignin, but in terms of just being able to break down a shitload of it relatively quickly, there is like a particular like fungus that does most of that the world over. Or not like one single species, but like kind of a class of fungi that do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like there is some like fossil evidence, which is like kind of up for debate because like fungi don't fossilize that often or that readily. But there there is like some evidence that plants evolve the ability to produce lignin before the particular type of fungus that breaks down lignin now, before it evolved the ability to do so by like, uh, you know, couple million years um and so basically during that interregnum during that intervening period plants grew they died uh like trees fell down whatever and like some of it could be broken down but like the lignin like a a large portion of its carbohydrate content was just completely like like nothing could break it down it just fucking chilled there forever Mm -hmm. and so uh over time like kind of dead trees accumulated. They got buried by soil, pressure, blah, 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 whatever, you get charcoal. Um, And so, like, part of the evidence for that is that, like, coal does all seem to be, like, kind of around the same age. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, we... When people... I don't know. I don't know when people think, like, the the time of dispersal of, like, fossil fuels was. Like, (laughs) hey, was... Were we were we making oil in the Cretaceous period or just the Triassic? Like, like I don't know if people I don't are think thinking people that. Are considering that. Like, I think that sometimes. I don't know. Uh, that doesn't I, surprise me. I just kind of assume that there were like hundreds of millions of years or billions of years that like coal was forming right. that were digging yes. up. But like, in in geologic terms, like most of the coal seemed to have been laid down in a pretty like pretty thin like rock strata like okay um it, yeah. it's, it seems to all be locatable within like a relative like a fucking long period of time but yes. like in geologic terms a pretty short period of time <laughs> yes. um and yeah like there there is that evidence that like yeah maybe fungi didn't have this ability yet and so that that has been like the conventional explanation for like where did the coal come from why did it all seem to be deposited in about the same period of time uh for a long long time Basically, you couldn't break down the plants. They built up. They were buried. That all became coal. Um, there is an alternate explanation that I... So I do do additional research for this podcast. Like, I, I don't just... <laughs> I don't just repeat stuff that I, that I like, read for other purposes. And, like, 
I was thinking about it, and I was like, that feels like a bit too much of a just-so story. Let me read about this a little bit more. Um, and so as of, like, 2016, I believe, there is a different hypothesis uh, for it that I, I think has pretty wide purchase now. So, like, the, this, this I think, is currently believed to be the more correct explanation, um, which is, it, it was basically just a a ideal confluence of events as the supercontinent of Pangaea was coming together. Just mm -hmm. like all of that tectonic activity with like what was previously in ocean now being surrounded by like land masses coming together. It just created like a bunch of marshes that are like ideal for kind of peat and then coal to form because it's like really oxygen poor. So like if something dies and it sinks down in the swamp, it can be like covered and just like not exposed to like fungi or bacteria that could break it down. Mm -hmm. And so like, um, yeah, like, like, like there are still peat marshes today where the stuff, you know, is not as old as, uh, like coal or oil or whatever. Um, so yeah, like that, that is the current, the current leading hypothesis. I think it's just like, eh, Pangea was coming together it just made like really good marshes for for uh for coal to well for initially peat to form and then it gets buried pressure heat whatever becomes coal so anyway i do i do like the old explanation better that it's just a bunch of dead trees just piled up for millions of years and eventually became charcoal before fungi figured out how to break down lignin but Whatever. Anyway, so that's a fun probably not fact. And but... the breaking down lignin is our is our connection to fiber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. beta glycosidic bond. Yeah. Not much can break it down. Very strong. Okay. Uh, third third fun fact is that um, not all fiber uh, is actually indigestible and in, in fiber um, because of the types of bonds. So you can actually get fiber from starch itself. So there's a, a class of compounds called resistant starch. And there are like different kinds of resistant starch, but it's not worth talking about the differences here, um, which, which is just starch. Like it's amylose, am, amylopectin, like the, the normal shit that would be in like rice, potatoes, bread, whatever. Um, but it is considered resistant because it resists digestion, mm -hmm. but not because of the types of bonds, but just basically due to like shape. So if the starches are exposed, the enzymes can get in, they can break down the bonds, then you get the little sugar molecules, they get into your bloodstream, your body knows what to do with them. But with resistant starch, essentially, either if, if starchy things are uncooked or if they're cooked and then cooled down again, instead of just kind of continuing to be exposed, They'll either be like pre-existing in crystalline structures or they will reform crystalline structures when cooled. And that basically like protects a lot of the starch inside because, you know, theoretically, if resistant starch just hung out in your small intestine for like months, like you would probably be able to digest it completely. But just in the time frame on which digestion takes place, it it just it just can't do it like it mm -hmm. it basically curls up in like a little crystalline cocoon <laughs> so that it's not exposed to the enzymes and um yeah then it behaves like a fiber like you you can't digest it uh it might get to your large intestine where like some bacteria can break it down but yeah like it's it's starch but it behaves like a fiber and it used to be considered kind of its own thing like 
people would talk about starch and fiber and kind of resistant starch as this whole separate thing that's just kind of between the two. Mm-hmm. But more and more often in, in recent years, I see like scientists and researchers just referring to resistant starch as a type of fiber, which is fun. So it's it's not all just about the bonds. Sometimes it's about the shape and crystalline structures. And we like crystals on this podcast, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I feel neutral about them. <laughs> Actually, I don't. I'm not like woo-woo about crystals, but I do fucking love crystals. Like I think they're just We love cool. a crystal shop, yeah. Yeah, like I'm not going to I'm not going to like purchase stuff and be like, "Oh yeah, this... Well, you did in Atlanta. Well, that was a, that was a ball of copper though. It wasn't a crystal. It was in a crystal shop. Yeah, but uh, so dear listeners, I bought a ball of copper and it's <laughs> one of the best purchases I've ever made. Um it is so satisfying to have something that's like it's probably like an inch in diameter. Mm-hmm. But it's so much heavier than most like things. A little that... smaller than a golf ball. Yeah, but it's it's just it, it has so much more heft than something that is approximately that size and just a, a little thing that's kind of heavy. Like it's not and it's shiny. It's cool. I love I love messing with it. It's one of the most fun things to fidget with. Um, anyway, it's good. <laughs> but we're not crystal people. We're not. No. But if you are, that's fine. That's cool. It is. Okay, so last thing about fiber, there are broadly two types, soluble and insoluble. Insoluble fiber is stuff that both you and your gut bacteria can't digest. You you eat it, and it basically gets through your digestive system essentially unscathed. You poop it out. It helps with gastric motility by Mm -hmm. kind of like like irritating the walls of your intestines, and then they're like, no, fuck you. Get out of here. So it'll... (laughs) So yeah, so the, yeah. they'll they'll do more peristalsis to uh-huh. get get this noxious, irritating thing out. Like that that's largely how it increases gastric motility. I don't know what to tell you. Like you're, you're I lo- mean it's you're gross, looking... but that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also helps add bulk to feces, so it helps you stay regular. So yeah, if if people are like, ah, I'm taking fiber to help me poop, like it's probably it's probably insoluble fiber. Yeah. Um, and then soluble fiber, uh, you can't digest it, but your gut bacteria can, um, largely, like not always, but typically. Um, so you ferment it in your large intestine. Uh, and so like if you get gassy after eating fiber, it's probably from soluble fiber, uh, rather than insoluble. Like the gas is created by your intestinal bacteria breaking down the soluble fiber. Um, and as it does so, it does. It might make you gassy, but it's those bacteria are also producing various compounds that help keep your colon healthy and reduce your risk of colon cancer. Uh, and some of those compounds are short-chain fatty acids, um, which are still absorbed through the lining of your large intestine that your body can use for energy. So even though you yourself aren't directly digesting soluble fiber, you you do still derive some energy from it. Like an average of about two calories per gram versus like just straight up zero for, for insoluble fiber. What are some examples of foods in both categories? Oh God, you're putting me on the spot. I'm sorry. Um, let's see. For, for insoluble fiber, like one of, I think one of the classic examples is oatmeal. I think it's like kind oh, okay. of 50-50 soluble, insoluble. Um, for insoluble fiber, like anything that's like just really fibrous would, would have it. Like I'm, I don't know this to be the case, but I'm going to guess that like the kind of like strings and celery, I'm going to guess that those are insoluble fibers. 
Um, I think a lot of the fibers or a lot of the fiber that is present in just like green leafy vegetables, mm-hmm. like in kale or whatever, like I, I think a lot of that is insoluble. I'll be honest. I don't know for sure though. Like not just right off the top of my yeah. head. Cause I, I don't care that much. Like I, when it comes to fiber, my basic approach is just like eat some fruits and vegetables sometimes. Right. And I assume whatever I'm getting will be fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last one, water. Not going to say too much about it. Just that when people talk about essential nutrients, water is often overlooked. But it's it's maybe, by some definitions, maybe the most important of them all. Seems like um, it. You need to consume more of it than any other nutrient you need to consume. And uh, not consuming it will kill you faster than any other nutrient. Like... All of the other essential nutrients, if you never consume them, you will die. Except for vitamin D. Again, I don't know that it's... You'll never die. I I think it might be conditionally essential. Whatever. Uh, Hot take. But water, absolutely fucking essential. And um, yeah, don't consume vitamin B1. You'll you'll die of beriberi in months, I guess. Don't consume water like you're dead in a week. So very important. Absolutely an essential nutrient. Don't sleep on the water. Unless you have a waterbed. Yes, yes. Or uh, or if you're an otter. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. If there are any otters listening <sighs> to this podcast, shouts to you. Now I'm thinking about otters that they sleep with their partner and they hold hands so they don't drift away in the tide. It's so cute. They are very cute creatures. I love otters. I think, um, we're, ta- I think we're done talking about micronutrients for today. I think we are. Do you, uh, do you have any questions or... Anything you want to add? Just general thoughts about micronutrients? Just that I'm excited for the future episodes. Good. I am too. Nice. All right. So we have a question about bone health. Hi, my name's Monica, and I would like to know in what way uh, training for optimal bone health would differ from training for muscle strength and hypertrophy if at all. Um, My guess is that pushing exercises would be better than pulling. I've also heard that plyometrics are best. Uh, Are plyometrics safe for people over 60? Thank you. All right. Thank you for that question. Uh, And that, that is a very good question. So by and large, training you would do to build muscle and strength will also be good for, um, building bone strength as well or, or preserving bone strength into older age. Uh, but there are the, the, the main difference is that there are things that you could do for bone health that wouldn't necessarily be ideal training for strength and muscle. But for the most part, if you are primarily training to build strength or build muscle, you probably don't necessarily need to worry too much about doing additional training for bone health. But um, to the extent that those differences exist... Uh, one of the things you mentioned was plyometrics. Plyometric training, if you're untrained, will probably help build some muscle. But if if you're reasonably well-trained, it's probably not going to be a great hypertrophy stimulus. But it does cause pretty high forces on the bones. It, it probably would be a pretty decent stimulus for bone remodeling. Um, and another good example is just the types of like cardio you might want to do. So... Um, like jogging or running, for instance, because of the impact element of it, 
Um, it's also just good for bone health compared to lower impact forms of cardio like cycling or swimming or rowing. Um, and so like by and large, uh, none of those things are going to be particularly productive for building muscle or getting stronger. But yeah, if you wanted to run instead of do those other things, it's probably a little bit better for bone health. Um, but overall, if you're if you are already training for muscle and strength, you're you're probably covered on the bone health front. Um, so before I say kind of the main thing I want to say, I do just want to address the question about plyometrics being like the best stimulus for bone remodeling and whether that still applies in your 60s or, or whether plyos are still safe in your 60s. Um, so bone remodeling is kind of weird where it basically, and, and like this is still like a developing area of research. So everything I'm about to say may be found to be wrong in like five years, but this is this is the current understanding of, of people that study this stuff. It seems like there's essentially a maximum stimulus that that your bones can kind of like sense and respond to and once you exceed that level of stimulus in a particular session um it, it just doesn't really do much else like you you've already achieved a maximum stimulus for bone remodeling and so plyometrics do cause like really high like acute impact forces so you 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 do get like large like really acute compressive forces on on your bones and so, like, on a contraction-by-contraction contraction basis, doing plyometrics might, like, put more force on your femur and therefore cause a greater remodeling response than, say, like, a single rep of squats would. So just kind of, like, on a on a rep-by-rep rep basis, I wouldn't be surprised if you, do, if you did get the largest stimulus from plyometrics. But um, since, since there is kind of that cap going on, since you do kind of hit that plateau beyond which further stimulus just doesn't really seem to further increase bone remodeling. Um, you, like, I think you can probably reach the same total, like, dosage of stimulus for a workout from resistance training or plyometrics, su such that, like, you know, the idea that plyometrics being the best stimulus there is, like, I, I think that I think that that's probably true, but also not all that applicable. Like, if, if you were just doing three reps and that was your entire workout... Yeah, maybe do plyometrics. If you're just doing a whole workout, I, th I think it probably doesn't matter all that much. Um, and then the question about, oh, oh uh, safety. Uh, so whether or not plyometrics are safe, I think is less of an age question and more of a, are your tissues prepared for it question? So if uh, in general, like connective tissue, does tend to get weaker with age so like you you might have a slightly elevated risk of some sort of tendon or ligament injury if you do plyometrics but in general it's it's mostly a question of just kind of like what are your tissues adapted to and capable of and with most things it'll be fine if you ease into it so if you if you took someone who was just completely deconditioned at 20 and completely deconditioned at 60 and said hey we're going to put you through a really tough plyometric workout I think there I think there's a very good chance that the 60-year-old would be much more likely to get injured than the 20-year-old. Um, but if you took someone who had already been doing plyometric training like their whole life and now they're 60 years old, it's probably perfectly fine. Or if you haven't done plyometrics but you you just want to for whatever reason, 
I think you could probably work with a trainer to gradually build up to that where instead of say doing like 18 inch depth jumps and like trying to, you know, hit hard, jump high, like all of that, like really, really high reactive forces, you know, just starting with like a three inch step down from a box where you just step off, absorb the force, boom, that's it. And just really, really basic stuff and build from there. I, th I think you probably could do plyometrics, like plyometric type exercise safely at just about any age. It's just a question of whether or not you give your tissues enough time to, to adapt to that type of loading. Um, but then the last and I think main thing I wanted to say about training for bone health is just that like resistance training itself is fine and probably more than sufficient for most people most of the time. So um, in in the question, uh, Monica said that she assumed that uh, pushing exercises are probably better than pulling exercises. And I think the assumption underpinning that is it is a reasonable assumption people have when they think about like forces on, on your bones and bone remodeling with lifting but is, is actually like not a great assumption. So th that assumption is, I, I think, and, and Monica, if you weren't thinking this, I apologize, but I think a lot of people look at, look at the forces on your body in lifting and mostly only account for external forces. And so like with a pressing exercise, for instance, like bench press, the bar is, is resting in your outstretched arms and the weight of the bar is pressing into your hands. So that is putting compressive forces on your bones versus like a row, for instance, like it's the same basic motor pattern, but in reverse, but now, you know, the, the weight is like pulling out. So like, it's not putting the same compressive force on your bone. And so you assume that like, ah, this is probably a worse stimulus than, than the pressing exercise would be. Uh, and, and like in the Stronger by Science Facebook group, there was a question about this related to like squats versus knee extensions, like with, with the assumption that since the weight is like over your body in squats. Like it's it's pressing down, causing compressive forces all the way through your body to the floor versus knee extension. Like maybe it's causing some shearing forces, but the weight isn't oriented along the long axis of your, of your femur or tibia. So like it wouldn't be putting compressive forces on anything. So like it wouldn't be doing much for bone remodeling. So the, the basic... Um, like the, the basic bit of information about all of this stuff that like folks very, very frequently overlook is that most of the forces your muscles are experiencing is not from the load you're lifting. It's from your actual like muscle contractions themselves. Hey, just recording a quick correction in post. Uh, I meant to say that most of the forces your bones experience are the result of muscle contractions. Sorry, now back to the episode. And I, I always say this anytime this comes up, because it, it blows people's minds, but it's completely true. Your muscles are so fucking strong. Like, you, people, people don't realize this. Your muscles are so fucking strong. So, for instance, let's say your, your one rep max bicep curl with one arm is 10 pounds. Like, not much weight at all. It seems like podunk nothing, like, ah, oh, man, I'm so weak, I can only curl 10 pounds. Your, your biceps are probably contracting with around 100 pounds of force. So 
Like your, your body has a very inefficient lever system, like a very efficient lever system for like flexibility, but really inefficient for, for moving large external loads. So if you think about where your bicep inserts on your forearm, it's very, very close to your elbow uh, versus your hand pretty far away from your elbow. So like the distance from where the load is to the axis of rotation for the joint is probably about 10 times greater than the distance from where your muscle inserts to the axis of rotation for the joint, which means that if you have 10 pounds in your hands, due to where your bicep is inserting, like it would need to contract with 100 pounds of force in order to move 10 pounds. So like that that scales. Like if if you're doing knee extensions with 50 pounds, like that's uh, like the same general principle would apply like with... Um, with like quad contractions. Like if you're doing knee extensions with 50 pounds, like that's that's not all that much weight. Um, but your quads are probably contracting with like four or 500 pounds of force, just like linear force. And most of your muscles are oriented along the long axis of bones, um, like, like of, of the joints they cross. And so if your biceps are contracting with 100 pounds of force, if you're just lifting 10 pounds, that means you're putting about 100 pounds of compressive force on your humerus. If you're just doing knee extensions with 50 pounds, like you're you're putting about four or 500 pounds of compressive force on your femur just from your quads contracting. Um, and so that that is where most of the force comes from. And so, um, yeah, like a, a pressing exercise, there is also the additional external load of the bar, but the, the additional external load is so small compared to the forces your your muscles themselves are generating um that like yeah it, it it is probably technically true that the that the forces on your bones are a little bit higher in pressing than pulling exercises but not enough to worry about because the the external load is almost irrelevant um just, just because your muscles are contracting with so much force and most of the force your bones themselves are feeling is the force generated by your muscles contracting. Um, and yeah, it's it's a shitload of force. And so uh, if you're doing pretty challenging resistance training, that should be a more than sufficient stimulus for bone remodeling. And if you're younger, increasing bone strength. If you're older, preserving bone strength uh, into your golden years. And uh, so yeah, there, there, there are some stimuli that are on the table for bone health that wouldn't necessarily apply for building muscle and strength, like plyos, like running instead of cycling or swimming. Like you, you can have like a slightly bigger toolkit, but if you're already doing resistance training, you, you probably just don't need to worry about it too much because resistance training itself is such a good stimulus because your muscles are so strong. They're putting very large forces on your bones. Okay, uh, that is it for this episode. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again in two weeks with part two of this series, which I'm thinking at this moment will probably be a three-parter, but we'll see. Um, until then, eat your fruits and veggies. Have a good couple of weeks. Uh, we love you. We appreciate you. And we'll talk to you again next time. Goodbye. <laughs>